Welcome to Time Traveling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. This week we join the Doctor and his friends as they face the Ambassadors of Death. We'll be talking about the Doctor, the companions and the villains and give your thoughts on the story as a whole. We would also love to hear your thoughts on this story. And so to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team. That's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravelingteamp at teampproductions.com. But first, though, I suppose I'd better give you the story recap. That's what you're here for. <laughs> I thought I was here for my sparkling wit and personality. I'm better. Yeah. <laughs> Read the show, monkey. <laughs> ah. Episode one. In deep space, a rescue shuttle is approaching the motionless Mars 7 probe, which has been out of contact with Earth for several months. The pilot of the rescue shuttle, Ben Lydon, is doubtful that there is anyone left alive on the probe, and the rescue mission coordinator, Professor Cornish, seems to agree. His second-in-command, Dr. Bruno Tatalian, says that this would paint the space program in a negative light as the media are closely following the rescue mission. The brigadier, who is also on hand to observe the rescue, asks what Cornish will tell the media, but Cornish replies that that is someone else's responsibility. In the TARDIS, the doctor is watching a news report about the rescue mission, and it gives some background information on the probe itself. It was a manned reconnaissance mission to the surface of Mars, which seemed to go well, but 12 hours after landing, communication with the astronauts ceased. Eight months later, after the worst had been assumed, the probe was detected by long-range scanners. He turns on the television and goes back to tinkering with the TARDIS console. Liz enters and asks him what he is doing, and he tells her that he is trying to repair the time vector generator. He then reactivates it, but sends Liz 15 seconds into the future. He tinkers with it and then disappears himself. Liz then reappears, and the Doctor appears a few seconds after her, whereby he explains what happened. He then notices the Brigadier on television as part of the news report, but he is still harbouring ill feeling towards him after the destruction of the Silurian base. Liz then turns up the TV, and they listen as the news reporter announces that the rescue shuttle is about to link up with the probe. Cornish walks Van Leiden through the linking procedure, and he successfully attaches the shuttle to the probe. Van Leiden then reports that he can hear something from the other side of the hatchway, leading him to believe that the probe crew are alive. However, once he opens the hatch, he recoils as a shrieking sound fills the air and gets piped back through the control centre and the TV broadcast, causing anyone that hears it a great deal of pain. The doctor solemnly announces that he has heard that sound before, but admits to Liz that he can't remember from where, due to the blocks in his memory. He tells Liz that they need to get to the control room as soon as possible. At the control centre, Cornish is informed that there are no faults on their end with the communications equipment. The Brigadier asks if they can send another rescue shuttle, but Cornish says that it would take time to organise. The Italian deals with the media, telling them that everything is fine, but grows frustrated with the questions as he can't give any definitive answers. The Doctor arrives and informs everyone that the sound will happen again as he believes it is a message of some description. He asks Cornish if they took a recording of the sound, but Cornish demands that he leave as he is too busy trying to contact the shuttle. As they argue, the sound appears again, and once it ends, he asks to be given copies of the recording, as well as computer equipment to analyse it. Again, Cornish refuses, but before the Doctor can berate him, the Brigadier pulls him aside and tells him that Cornish is the head of the facility and needs to be handled with more care. The Doctor then tries a softer approach, indicating that his sole desire is to help save the astronauts. Cornish agrees, but the sound reappears again, and the Doctor announces that he now needs access to the worldwide triangulation as the new sound originated from Earth as a reply to the first two messages. He says that since the first message was repeated, there is a good chance the reply will be as well. As the group from UNIT work on setting up the triangulation points, Italian arrives and says it will be at least 10 days before another rescue shuttle will be ready. The sound then appears again and the triangulation marks points its origin to London. The Brigadier then 
gets a call from one of his field teams that did the triangulation, telling him that they found the origin point in a nearby abandoned warehouse. In the warehouse, two men are using radio equipment to broadcast the signal. Another man arrives and informs one of the duo, who seems to be in the overall charge, about the arrival of unit troops. The leader tells the man to hold them off and avoid killing anyone if possible. A firefight breaks up between the unit troops and the others, who all appear to have military training. Despite the leader's wishes, there are several casualties on both sides. During the fighting, the man and the brigadier get into a standoff, which is broken while one of the unit troops tries to sneak up on the man. He manages to escape and has the brigadier at his mercy before he unexpectedly drops his gun and surrenders himself. The man and his surviving compatriots are then taken away by the unit troops. Meanwhile, the leader orders the radio's self-destruct system to be engaged, and he and the radio operator escape just before the brigadier and his men enter the room. The radio then explodes, throwing them to the ground. In the control centre, the doctor demands that Cornish order Tatalian to give him access to the computer equipment as he had previously agreed to. Cornish calls him and then informs the doctor and Liz that they are free to go to the computer labs. After they leave, Cornish is informed of a massive solar flare that would hit the shuttle and probe in less than 24 hours. He relays to the shuttle and probe but gets no answer. Meanwhile, the doctor and Liz enter the computer lab where Tatalian sneaks up on them and pulls a gun on them. Episode 2 Tatalian demands the recording from the doctor but refuses to tell him why he wants it. The doctor holds it out to him but then suddenly vanishes into thin air. Tatalian begins to search him but the brigadier arrives forcing him to take Liz as a hostage to ensure his escape. He throws her to the ground and flees as the brigadier goes after him, leaving the doctor to help to startle Liz off the floor. He then holds out his hand and the recording appears again and he informs a shot Liz who asks if he sent it into the future that he simply transmigrated it. They then place the recording in an analog digital converter, and the brigadier returns and says Tatalian got away. The doctor asks him about what he discovered in the warehouse, and informs him about the prisoners he took. The doctor asks to see the leader of the prisoners, but he refuses to answer any questions, even under their good cop, bad cop approach. As they are about to leave, the doctor catches the man out and gets him to reveal himself as a soldier. The brigadier asks if he is a deserter, but the doctor states that he is clearly following orders. The brigadier is then given a message by one of his men, and he tells the doctor to follow him. They go back to the control room, where they find out that the rescue shuttle and the probe have separated, but there is still no communication from anyone in either craft. Cornish and his assistants then rush to prepare the rescue shuttle's return due to its unexpected speed. The doctor says he will go and check on Liz's progress, whilst the brigadier says he will run a background check on the prisoner. Unfortunately, while this is happening, the prisoner has been freed by a mysterious assailant. The doctor is annoyed to discover that the signal seems to be nothing but gibberish, but Liz says it might be a computer error. The technician says that the machine should be fine, but Liz says she will run a standard test on it. However, the doctor says instead to get it to calculate 2 plus 2, and when it returns with an answer of 5, he voices his distaste for computers. However, Liz suggests that Tatalian possibly interfered with it. Back in the control room, Cornish oversees the approach of the rescue shuttle, but again there is no response to their communications. However, they manage to take remote control of the shuttle and guide it to land safely. The doctor and the brigadier congratulate Cornish on his success, but he says it will all be for naught if the astronauts are dead. Together, they all go to look at the shuttle landing site in the countryside, and again they receive no answers to their communications. The brigadier says they need to get them out, but Cornish says the mechanism appears to be jammed, but the doctor says it actually looks like it has been locked from the inside. He suggests bringing it back to the space centre so they can try and safely get into it without risking the lives of the astronauts. The brigadier radios for the roads to the space center to be cleared. Unknown to him, his communications are being listened into by the two men from the radio room in the warehouse. The doctor goes on ahead to the space center whilst the brigadier rides in the shuttle escort. En route to the space center, 
the escort convoy is attacked by a helicopter that drops smoke bombs, causing the convoy to veer off the road. The helicopter lands and two men exit from it, wearing strange gas masks and are carrying strange pistol-like weapons connected to their backpacks. They shoot everyone from the convoy, including the brigadier, before hijacking the truck containing the shuttle's life pod. One of the Indian soldiers tries to enter the helicopter, but is kicked off as it tries to take off again. As the doctor is driving back to the space center, he intercepts the truck and, sensing something wrong, pulls Bessie into the middle of the road and pretends to have broken down. The truck stops and the driver, who is actually the radio operator from the warehouse, tells him to move. The doctor asks him for help in moving Bessie off the road, and together with the radio operator's superior, they push her off the road. The doctor then activates an anti-theft device that stops the duo from removing their hands from the car, and then takes the truck back to the space center. He arrives back a few hours later to find the brigadier safe, who informs him that his men found Bessie, but the men were no longer there. Liz then calls for the doctor and summons him to the computer lab. She shows him some of her analysis work, and it looks like the signal is an attempt at pictographic communication. He says that an alien intelligence is most likely a play, and they must go inform the brigadier. After they leave, the technician makes a phone call, informing his contact about the duo's progression on the crack in the code. The doctor and the brigadier have gone to meet Sir James Quinlan, a minister of technology, and present him with everything that has occurred so far. Quinlan promises to launch an investigation into the strange goings-on, and they leave, albeit a small bit dissatisfied on the part of the doctor. After they have gone, Quinlan opens a side door and tells Italian to come in. Italian asks what his plans to do about the unit, and Quinlan tells him that they have a surprise coming. Back at the space centre, Liz continues to try reaching the astronauts to no avail, and the brigadier again suggests cutting the shuttle open. Cornish gives his permission, but before they can do anything, Liz gets a response from one of the astronauts. Cornish is relieved to hear Van Leiden's voice, but soon grows alarmed when Van Leiden repeatedly asks for space control to grant permission for re-entry. The doctor asks a series of random questions, but he only gets the same response, and then he orders the life pod to be cut open. Episode 3 Using thermal lances, Cornish's men cut into the life pod, but when they open it, they find it completely empty. The doctor discovers a tape recording playing Van Leiden's message and suggests that someone put it there to delay them from opening the capsule. Liz asks why someone would do that and the doctor says that clearly someone was trying to buy more time so that the removal of the astronauts would not be noticed. The brigadier says that the life pod has been under guard the whole time but the others tell him that they were sent to the control room for a period of time while a security team did a sweep of the area. The brigadier denies any knowledge of organising the security sweep and says he will go and speak to the guard commander and the doctor goes with him. Before they leave, Liz points out that the interior of the life pod was highly radioactive, which means that anyone inside it would surely be dead. At another secret facility, the man from the warehouse, who is revealed to be General Carrington of the regular army, is observing the monitoring of the three astronauts. He is told by a scientist that they observed a lethal dose of radiation, but they have resisted any attempt to remove their spacesuits. The scientist says that they must begin medical treatments immediately to try and reduce the radiation, but Carrington said orders him to increase the radiation input into the room that they are in, as the astronauts have become dependent on it to survive. In Quinlan's office, the Doctor, the Brigadier and Liz are confronting him with the fact that the regular army seems to be involved with the abduction of the astronauts. Quinlan then calls Carrington into the room and introduces him as the head of the newly created Space Security Department. Liz recognises him as the pilot from the Mars Probe 6 mission, and he then offers them an apology for his actions and those of his accomplices. He tells them that the signal was a specially coded message from the astronauts of the probe, informing him that they had passed through a previously unknown radiation belt on its way back to Earth. The signal was kept secret as the government didn't want to cause an international panic due to the fact that the radiation is both highly lethal and highly contagious. The doctor is still dubious of the story and requests to see the astronauts for himself. 
However, as they are talking, the astronauts are removed from the facility by a trio of men who hold the scientists at gunpoint. The leader of the men takes the astronauts out to the van, whilst the other two kill the scientist. They then drive off, and minutes later, the doctor and the others arrive at the facility. The trio arrive at a quarry, where the leader of the trio emerges from the driver's seat wearing radiation gear. He opens the rear door and takes out the body of his two dead accomplices, who succumb to the radiation as they guard at the astronauts. He throws their bodies into the quarry, where they are buried in rubble. Back to the facility, Liz notices the radiation records and points out to the doctor that her initial thoughts were correct, as the astronauts have absorbed more than 2 million rads. A survey team is dispatched to the facility to help the investigation, and the brigadier asks why someone would kidnap the astronauts. Carrington says that they could be used as a biological weapon by a foreign power, and when asked, reveals that the people that knew about the facility were both his and Quinlan's immediate staffs. The doctor then announces that the astronauts are still in space in the probe, and that whatever is in their spacesuits is not human. Cornish puts in a request to Quinlan to organise another rescue attempt, but he gets opposition from the minister, and so he threatens to alert the press to his stance. Cornish hangs up on Quinlan, and the minister asks Harrington, who is also in the room, how they can stop him from sending up another shuttle. At another facility, the man leading the abduction, whose name is Regan, is dealing with a scientist named Lennox who wonders if they should take the astronauts to the hospital due to their high radiation count. He then receives a phone call and gives an update on the abduction and the disposal of his accomplices. A few moments later, one of the astronauts gets up and tries to approach the door, but collapses after his signals to Lennox. Lennox says he needs to examine them to make sure they are okay, but Regan is reluctant to do so until the scientist says he won't get his money if they are dead. Regan goes in to check on the astronaut, but it attacks him and he gets out of the room. It chases Lennox up the stairs to the exit, but it then collapses. Regan recovers and then gets a call from his superiors who tell him to expose the astronauts to more radiation in order to keep them alive. A short while later, a package is delivered to the facility containing pictures of the doctor and Liz. Lennox says he recognises Liz from his time at Cambridge, and Regan tells him that they are his next targets for elimination. Back at the space centre, the doctor is finishing the examination of the life pod, and he says that the radiation is completely gone, and that if Quinlan won't authorise a new shuttle, they can use this one. Liz then receives a message from the brigadier, summoning her to the quarry to take a look at the bodies. The doctor tells her to go as she wants to stay to prep the shuttle. Not long after she leaves, the brigadier arrives, and he and the doctor realise that Liz is walking into a trap, and the brigadier says he will go after her. Meanwhile, Liz notices that she is being followed, and a high-speed chase ensues between her and her pursuer. Unfortunately for Liz, Bessie is not as fast as the modern car chasing them, and she is eventually overtaken. She then exits and runs across a nearby football field and makes her way out to a narrow footbridge crossing a river. Her pursuers manage to catch up to her, and she manages to knock one of them over the safety railing before she herself is pushed over, leaving her to hang precariously. Episode 4 The man that Liz pushed over manages to haul himself back onto the bridge, and together with his colleague, they haul her back to safety. They then send her to the secret facility, where Regan takes her down to the control room, and there she recognises Lennox. Regan tells Defiant Liz that she had better help Lennox, or he'll lock her into the radiation room together with the astronauts. Back at the space centre, the brigadier tells the doctor and the newly arrived Carrington that he has sent out an alert for Liz. Carrington turns her attention to the two bodies that were found in the quarry, producing items found in their pockets, such as newspaper cuttings, that would suggest they are agents of a foreign power. He uses this to support his theory that the astronauts were kidnapped to be used as a weapon, but again, the doctor states that whatever is in the spacesuits is not the astronauts. 
Carrington seems skeptical of this, but the doctor points out that the scientist at Carrington's facility was attempting to communicate with them via radio impulses as opposed to standard speech. The doctor then says that he is going to the computer room so he can decode the impulses in an attempt to communicate with the aliens when they recover them. In the computer room, Tatalian and Cornish are preparing the rocket for immediate spaceflight when the doctor walks in and pretends to have a gun pointed at Tatalian's back. The scientist says he was merely following orders and says he wouldn't have shot him or Liz, which seems to satisfy the doctor, and he lets him go, showing him the pencil he was actually holding. Cornish asks for an update on Liz, but the doctor says that she is still missing. Cornish then leaves, and the doctor just starts to decode the impulses when a call comes through. Tatalian answers and says that it's for the doctor, who is told by the caller that Liz will die if he doesn't stop interfering. After a brief pause, the doctor says to Tatalian that they need to get back to work. The doctor discovers that the impulses are instructions to build some sort of device. Tatalian asks about the phone message and the doctor says that Liz is only in danger if his actions are reported back to her kidnappers by a spy and he accuses Tatalian of being one. When Tatalian reiterates that he was working under Carrington's orders, the doctor says that he meant that Tatalian is working for the real kidnappers, the ones that took the astronauts. Tatalian asks why he hasn't gone to the Brigadier with his suspicions, and he says that he wanted to offer Tatalian a chance to confess of his own volition as opposed to under interrogation by the Brigadier. He then leaves to go begin construction on the device. After he leaves, Tatalian takes a small communication device from a locker. At the other facility, Liz and Lennox are monitoring the astronauts and they note that the radiation level is lowering again. Lennox tells the man guarding them that they need another canister of radioactive isotopes and after he leaves, Liz tries to escape but to no avail. She then confronts Lennox about his part in this and he says that he sabotaged his career due to financial greed. Feeling remorseful for his part in the current situation, he gives Liz his key to the door and allows her to lock him into the radiation chamber in his protective gear so he can tell the guards that she ambushed him before she escaped. She makes her way to the main road where she manages to flag down a car and is happy to see Tatalian as the driver. However, her happiness turns to shock when he pulls a gun on her and forces her into the car. He drives her back to the facility where she is questioned by Regan about her escape. When she doesn't give him any answers, he sends her away and then speaks to Tatalian, who gives him the communicator as well as the sheet of signals to be able to command the aliens. Regan asks for a way to understand them, but Tatalian says he doesn't need to know that. Instead, he should follow his orders and use the aliens to raid specially selected targets. He then berates Regan's call to the Doctor as it made him more suspicious. Regan agrees to deal with the Doctor in return for a favour from Tatalian. He takes him into a separate room and after they go, Lennox thanks Liz for not giving him away and she informs him that she intends to try to escape again. In the room, Regan shows Tatalian a suitcase bomb and instructs him on how to use it so they can eliminate the Doctor. In the Brigadier's office, the Doctor voices his suspicions of Tatalian, but says he doesn't have any hard proof. He goes over Carrington and Quinlan's cover story, which he says is preposterous. He tells the Brigadier that he may be able to get proof once he builds the device, but before he goes, he asks for an update on Liz, but the Brigadier says that there is nothing new. The Doctor meets Cornish, who frustratedly tells him that there are no available astronauts for the new mission due to the interference from Quinlan. The Doctor then says that he will be able to pilot the shuttle, informing Cornish that he has more space travel experience than anyone on his staff, albeit not in as primitive a craft as the shuttle. Cornish goes to prepare some simulation tests for the Doctor, and Tatalian arrives, asking the Doctor if he will honour his promise to allow him to go free if he reveals the conspiracy. The Doctor agrees, and Tatalian momentarily contemplates actually revealing the plot to the Doctor, but she eventually decides to activate the bomb. However, it goes off when he tries to arm it. Back at the facility, Liz is using the device to send commands to the aliens, which they seem to obey. 
She asks Regan about the briefcase he gave to Talion, and he smugly replies that it is a way of getting rid of two birds with one stone. However, only one of the birds was killed, and the Doctor survives with only a few small cuts from flying debris. The Brigadier shows the Doctor the fault of time around the bomb, and says that whoever is behind the conspiracy seemed to think the Talion was a weak link. The Doctor then investigates the Talion's locker, and finds one of the communicators, which he says has the same design as the device he is currently trying to build. Meanwhile, in Quinlan's office, Carrington asks the Minister to keep trying to prevent the launch of the shuttle. Quinlan suggests telling the Doctor the truth, but Carrington says that he is too much of a wild card, and the only way to save Earth is to stop the launch of the rocket. Elsewhere, Regan uses the device to command one of the aliens to attack the space centre. The alien kills the sentry that tries to stop him, as well as the technicians in the computer room. It searches through Italian's locker, but to find the other communicator, but finds it missing, and so it leaves the room, killing another guard along the way. Up in the Brigadier's office, the Doctor confirms that the device from Italian's uh, locker is a way to communicate with the aliens, and the device that he is building will allow them to communicate back. He then receives a call from Quinlan, who asks if he still intends to pilot the shuttle. When the Doctor confirms his decision, Quinlan invites him to his office so he can tell him the truth about what's going on, so that he can persuade him not to. The Brigadier tells the Doctor that he will go as well. At Quinlan's office, another of the aliens enters and kills Quinlan before blasting open his private safe and searches through it. The Doctor then enters and goes to investigate Quinlan's body, not noticing the alien approaching from behind him. Episode 5 The Brigadier enters just as the alien is about to touch the Doctor and he shoots it. The Doctor tells him to keep away and tries to call out a warning to one of the Brigadier's men that enters the room, but he is killed by the alien, who then closes the door and fuses the lock. A short while later, Sergeant Benton arrives with more men and tells the Brigadier and the Doctor that the radiation signature of the alien disappears further up the road. The Doctor says that the aliens are being used for some purpose, and when the Brigadier asks if it is for conquest, he replies that that would be a ruse to throw them off the trail. In the facility, Liz says that she intends to try and communicate with the remaining alien, and Lennox tells her to be careful, as her curiosity could land her in trouble. She then questions him about Regan, and he tells her that he is taking orders from an unknown person. Liz then suggests to Lennox that he should try and escape to go for help, but he's reluctant to do so. Regan then returns with the aliens and puts them back into the radiation chamber. They are weakened from their exposure to the outside, and Lennox uses more isotopes to restore its vitality. Liz asks Regan what he had them do and tells them about the raids, but confirms that the Brigadier wasn't hurt. Regan seems to be relishing the power he has by using the aliens, as they are incredibly deadly as well as impervious to small arms fire, with bullets being blocked due to a small force field emanating from them. He then leaves, and Liz again tries to convince Lennox to help, citing his culpability in all the deaths caused by Regan. She tells him that if he goes to unit, then the Brigadier can do a deal to keep him safe. Lennox says that his keys been taken away, but Liz says that he'll have to bluff his way out. Together, they trick the guard into letting him go, using his lack of scientific knowledge to convince him that they need more isotopes to stop the aliens from dying. Back at the space centre, the doctor has been given medical clearance to pilot the shuttle, and he quickly brushes off Cornish's confusion at the results from his biology. Carrington then arrives and forbids them from proceeding with the launch, saying that all the deaths and attacks led to the obvious conclusion that a foreign power is helping to facilitate an alien invasion. The doctor says that this is only another reason to go and investigate the probe, and again he asks Carrington why he is so opposed to the mission. Carrington ignores him and instead suggests attaching a nuclear warhead to the shuttle and remotely piling it to destroy the probe. Cornish refuses to relent and tells Carrington that if he still wants to stop the mission he had better do so in the next two hours. Carrington storms out and the preparation for the launch continues. 
The doctor goes to get ready and the newly arrived brigadier gets a call from Benton telling him that Lennox has arrived and is looking for him. The brigadier tells him to be placed in one of the cells for the time being or to keep him safe until he finishes his security checks. Benton takes him to the cell and he tries to reassure nervous Lennox that he will be perfectly safe in the cell. Meanwhile, Regan returns and demands that Liz tell him where Lennox went, threatening her with a gun to make her talk. Liz tells him that he has gone to the space centre and Regan won't be able to stop him, but Regan instead calls his superior and informs him of the development. The superior says that he will deal with Lennox, but tells Regan to finish off the doctor, who has at that moment just been escorted by the brigadier to the launch site. In the shuttle, the doctor is anxious to get underway, but Cornish tells him that they can't rush things as the fuel they are using is a highly volatile experimental kind and could blow up the rocket if not loaded carefully. Outside, Regan arrives posing as a maintenance worker and knocks out the guard at one of the technicians at the fuel pumps. He then tampers with the injection regulator as well as the input valve for the experimental fuel. In the holding cell, Lennox is brought food by a soldier who asks for the door to be locked once again. However, while he takes the lid off the food, he discovers an unshielded isotope is on the plate. He goes to press the alarm, but it doesn't work because outside, the soldier has just snipped the wire to it. In the control room, the brigadier rushes in and tells Cornish to stop the launch as he has just come back from investigating the tampering with the fuel pumps. However, he is too late and the shuttle launches and Cornish and his crew try to remotely reduce the speed of the shuttle, but to no avail. The doctor tries to take manual control, but the G-forces are too powerful and he tells Cornish to prematurely jettison the stage one thrusters even though there may be a risk that he may not reach orbit and crash. However, the jettisoning works and the shuttle is able to carry on with the mission. Hours later, the doctor begins the docking procedure with the probe, but he is informed that an unidentified object is on a collision course with the shuttle and Cornish tells him to take evasive action. The doctor looks out of the porthole and sees a ship in the shape of a disc approaching. Episode 6 the doctor responds that the disc seems to be an enormous spaceship, but he tries to take evasive action, but to no avail, and his communication with the control room is cut off. The brigadier thinks that they have collided, but Cornish points out that if that was the case, they would be picking up debris on the scanners. In actuality, the shuttle is docked inside the ship, and a voice tells the doctor that they made him no harm, inviting him to board their ship. The doctor talks about the fate of the astronauts, and the voice replies that they are safe in a specially created environment. The Doctor exits the shuttle and is guided by the voice to a room containing the astronauts, who are watching a screen, giving them the illusion that they are watching a football match. The Doctor asks them if they know where they are, and Van Leiden says that they are in extended quarantine in the space centre after he successfully returned to Earth with the others. The Doctor informs them as to the true nature of their confinement, but they don't believe him. Suddenly, the screen activates again and the astronauts go into a trance before sitting down. The doctor tries to communicate with them, but one of the aliens appears on the bigger screen and tells him that they will not respond to him. The doctor demands to know why they were kept prisoner, but the alien, who resembles a shimmering humanoid, demands the return of his ambassadors. This confuses the doctor, and the alien says that his people feel betrayed as the terms of the agreement have been broken, and if the ambassadors are not returned, then Earth will be destroyed. The doctor says that no authority on Earth was aware of this, and he offers to return to Earth to find them and send them back. He asks to be allowed to take the astronauts back with him, but the aliens refuse, saying that they will be released when the ambassadors are returned. The alien then says that if the ambassadors are not returned, soon they will attack Earth. The astronauts are then released from their trance, and the doctor plays along with the illusion, promising to get them out of quarantine as soon as he can. Back in the space centre, the spaceship is measured as being a half a mile wide, which causes the brigadier alarm, and Carrington says it must be destroyed. The Brigadier says that the Doctor could be on board, but Carrington says that he is probably dead and they need to launch an atomic missile strike against the ship immediately. 
Connors objects to this, but Carrington ignores him and says that he must go in order to attend a World Security Council meeting about the ship. After he leaves, the Brigadier confines to Connors that he thinks Carrington knows more than he is letting on, citing his presence on a previous space probe mission. He then says that the only hope they have to stop Carrington's plan is that the Doctor might still be alive. Cornish is then told that NASA are preparing to launch an unmanned probe to investigate the spaceship, which is now emitting radio pulses. The Brigadier returns to it from a security check and informs Cornish of Lennox's death. Cornish berates him over this, as well as all the deaths and kidnappings that have occurred since the probe investigation started. The Brigadier says that they managed to identify the bodies from the quarry as petty criminals and not foreign agents, as Carrington suggested. He also says that the bomb that killed the Italian was a new one designed by the Army's weapons development team and that they have analysed Lennox's body and found trace amounts of a special type of insecticide in the mud on his shoes. He has issued search teams to all areas known to have that insecticide used. Cornish apologises for his earlier comments, but the Brigadier says he still has no answers as to where Liz and the astronauts are or who is holding them. Suddenly, they get an incoming message from the Doctor who tells him that he will explain everything when he lands and tells the Brigadier to order his men to go on standby. At the secret facility, Liz is placing another isotope inside the radiation chamber when the aliens try to stop her from leaving. One of them takes off its helmet and reveals a blistered and bubbling face. Liz manages to get out of the room and confronts the recently returned Regan about their identities. He says that he was paid to keep them there but has decided to use them for his own gain instead. He then invites Liz to join him after he informs her of Lennox's death. He offers Liz the chance to join them or else he'll kill her. Before she can respond, he receives a call from his superior, who informs him about the doctor's return, and he then informs Liz that he has been ordered to go meet him. Meanwhile, the doctor has entered Earth's orbit, and the brigadier says he will go to meet him, but Corn says that he must first go through decontamination, a process which takes about an hour. Outside the facility, Regan arrives posing as a technician, and is given access to the decontamination building. He drives to the outside of the building and begins to tamper with the vents, and attaches a gas pipe to one of them that begins to pump gas into the decontamination chamber when the doctor is waiting to be released. The doctor passes out choking from the gas, and Regan enters a short while later wearing a gas mask and takes the doctor away with him. This abduction isn't noticed until Cornish and the Brigadier try to contact him but get no response. The Brigadier goes to investigate and reports back to Cornish instructing the, him to seal off all the gates in the facility. However, the orders arrive too late as Regan drives away moments before the exits are sealed. Carrington returns but voices his opinion that the Doctor faked the kidnapping and is responsible for all the recent events. He uses the Doctor's mysterious past and the Brigadier's spotty answers about his connection to Unit to back up his point. He says he intends to launch a full investigation into the Doctor but the Brigadier points out that he will need to be found first. Cornish then asks about the Security Council meeting and he says it was a waste of time and that they need to destroy the ship as a moral duty. And after he leaves, Cornish says that he thinks Carrington is slipping into insanity. Back at the facility, Regan lies to his superior about the Doctor's death as he watches the Doctor and Liz reunite. He tells them about his encounter in the spaceship. Regan then asks the Doctor to build a communicator that would allow for two-way communication with the aliens. Knowing they will be killed otherwise, the Doctor agrees but says he needs a lot of equipment and Regan says he will get whatever is needed and then leaves the prisoners to write out their list. Once they are alone, the Doctor asks about a potential way out but Liz says that all the guards have been doubled since her escape. Doctor then says that they will need to find a way to bring the Brigadier to them. Suddenly, Carrington arrives and an initially happily Liz is shocked to discover that he is Regan's superior. He then points his gun at the Doctor, who does not seem at all surprised to see him, saying it is his moral duty to kill him. Episode 7 
Regan returns and Carrington berates him for not killing the Doctor as he was instructed to. Regan defends his actions by saying the Doctor can build a machine that will allow for proper communication between them and the aliens. Carrington thinks on Regan's statement and then asks the Doctor if he would be willing to help. The Doctor asks what his plan is and Carrington says he's, he intends to warn the world about a potential alien invasion, saying his belief that the friendly overture of the aliens were a ruse to have the forces of Earth lower their guard. He confirms that he met them on his mission to Mars and they killed his co-pilot. The Doctor states that he thinks that this was an accident as they did not know their own lethal nature, but Carrington insists that they must be destroyed. He says that he has been using the ambassadors as pawns in an attempt to create widespread fear towards the rest of their race. The Doctor asks about Quinlan's involvement and he says Quinlan helped because he wanted to recognition for establishing contact with an extraterrestrial race. The Doctor plays along and agrees to help Carrington. Carrington then tells Regan to prepare one of the aliens for transport for a special mission. He also instructs Regan to raid a number of isotope depots and demands that he follows his orders this time. Regan then takes the other aliens with him and instructing the Doctor to have the communication device finished by the time he gets back. After he leaves, Liz asks the Doctor what he intends to do and is surprised when he continues to work on the device. Back in the Space Center, Cornish and the Brigadier are observing the progress of the NASA probe as it makes its way towards the alien spaceship. The Brigadier then receives a call from one of Carrington's men, informing him that they have captured one of the aliens and are bringing him to the Space Center for examination. Meanwhile, Regan arrives at his first target and orders the aliens to kill the guards at the gate and break into the facility. He and his own men then steal isotopes as the aliens uh, command to stop anyone from interfering. Back at the Space Center, Carrington is preparing for a televised broadcast of the removal of the helmet from the alien, hoping it will cause the panic he desires. The Brigadier arrives and informs him of a raid on the isotope depot, and he tells the assembled media that this proves his claims of the alien's hostile nature are true. The Brigadier says that humans were reported with them, but Carrington replies that they are clearly traitors like the Doctor. The Brigadier rebukes his statement, but Carrington ignores him and continues his preparation for the broadcast. After he leaves, Cornish tries to get the reporter overseeing the broadcast to halt it, highlighting the dangers of Carrington's plan. Back at the facility, the Doctor has finished building the machine and asks Liz to see if there is any reaction from the recently returned aliens. However, this is for show for the guard's benefit, as he has also built a high-tech telegraph that the Doctor is using to send out an SOS message. Every radio in the surrounding area picks it up, as well as the radio at Unit HQ. The operator informs Benton about it, and he orders the operator to triangulate its origin. Regan then enters the room, and the Doctor uses the communication device to speak to the aliens, who demand to know why they have been kept prisoner and used to murder. Regan takes over the communication device and demands that they obey him. Inside the space center, the alien spaceship sends another message demanding the return of the ambassadors, or they will attack. Carrington states that he must start his own broadcast to prove his point, but the reporter says that he needs more time to set up the worldwide link that he had earlier requested. The Brigadier tells Carrington about the SOS message and says he thinks it's from the Doctor. Before he leaves to investigate, Carrington accuses him of colluding with the aliens and has him arrested, telling him that all of the unit personnel have also been arrested. Cornish tries to put a call through to the Ministry of Defence, but Carrington tells him that all the phone lines are under his control and nothing can get in or out with his permission. As he is being escorted to his cell, the Brigadier manages to break free from his guards and steals a car in order to get to the unit HQ. He arrives there and asks Benton if they have located the source of the SOS. Benton tells him that they have narrowed it down to an area of land owned by the army near the space centre. The Brigadier orders him to prepare an assault team, but Benton says that they only have a handful of men available as everyone else was stationed at the space centre, along with the entire motor pool. Benton says that the only other vehicle available to them is Bessie, and so they make their way to the site of the SOS. 
After arriving at the site, they get into a firefight with some of Carrington's men, and after dispatching them, they locate the building where the doctor and his are. They break in, and the brigadier wounds Regan, and is asked by an impatient doctor what took him so long. After reassuring both he and Liz are okay, the brigadier informs them about Carrington's coup at the space centre, and his own limited forces. Regan suggests using the aliens to gain access, hoping his suggestion will be taken into account when he faces trial. The doctor's group arrives at the space centre, and he instructs the aliens to break open the gate but avoid casualties if possible. Carrington's men open fire, and the doctor calls out to them that their bullets are useless due to the aliens' force field, and they eventually cease fire. Inside the centre, Cornish tries to stop Carrington from going through with the broadcast, but the general has him arrested. The broadcast begins, but suddenly the hallways are filled with the sound of gunfire as the newly released unit troops engage with the last of Carrington's men as they attempt to stop the aliens. The aliens enter the broadcast room along with the unit troops and the brigadier, who places the fanatical Carrington under arrest. Left with no other choice, Carrington surrenders, but insists to the doctor that he was only following his moral duty. The doctor tells Cornish to contact his spaceship in order to facilitate the exchange of the astronauts for the aliens. He then departs for Unit HQ, leaving Liz to help Cornish communicate with the aliens. He wishes the ambassadors well for their return trip, but hastily rethinks the handshake he started to offer them, settling for a well-wishing nod instead. End of the story. So, as always, after my lovely dulcet tones give a summary, uh, we're going to go over to the trivia corner. Um, sorry, the trivia spot. But before that, I actually have my own piece of trivia. As of now, we are just over one quarter of the way through the amount of episodes of Doctor Who. Really? Yes. However, we're like just over a fifth of the way through in terms of story in story numbers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. We're getting there. <laughs> and. That's like one of those goalposts that obviously with Doctor Who is going to keep moving. <laughs> well, g- will give, we ever catch up? I th- okay. Given the recent developments of the the final the announcement of Jodie's departure, mm. and the I what was it? It was initially meant to be a ten episode season. Then that was yep. bumped back down to eight. Now I'm hearing that it's going to be six with three specials. Mm. So obviously, and the you know current events are stopping, like production going yeah. at the normal rate. So I have a fair thing that we probably will catch up in within the next couple of years, because obviously, if you think about the fact that was it, it nowadays it runs for like thirty, it used to run for thirteen weeks, and then you had the remaining what is a nine months of the year off. Yeah, I suppose. So, yeah, I suppose. yeah. So we'll we'll get there. Don't worry. And then we have Sarah Jane, and then we have Torture, and then we have everything else. And Class. I've never actually watched Class, have you? I, I did. And do you know what? I didn't mind it. I thought, I thought it was great. I was actually disappointed that it was cancelled. However, Big Finish being Big Finish, they brought it back. So, over to you now. Cool. Let's talk Ambassadors of Death. So, the air date for the story was the 21st of March, the 2nd of May, 1970. The writer was David Whittaker. This is the final of eight stories for David. His previous ones were The Edge of Destruction. Very good. The Rescue. Very good. good. The Power of the Daleks. Quite good. Yeah. The Evil of the Daleks. Very good. The Enemy of the World. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> and The Wheel in Space. 
You missed one there, did you? The crusade? I read it. I just didn't say it. <laughs> it's on the list. Just I just, the, my brain yeah. skipped it for some reason. <laughs> yes, the crusade. Also Excellent. very good. <laughs> David Whitaker named this his least favorite of the stories he wrote. And that's probably because he actually ended up writing very little of it. Most of it was actually written by Malcolm Hulk, who went un- uncredited just for contractual reasons. Hmm. But yeah, I was like, oh, that was my least favorite. You wrote the least amount of it. That that was my least favorite. <laughs> exactly. That is why it's my least favorite. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's always weird for those things, I imagine. Like if you're a writer and your name is the one associated with it, but... Like I suppose it's like um, you know one of our treasured writers, John Nucarati, yeah. with the massacre. Yeah, it also reminds me a little bit of I've forgotten their name now. We've met them several times at WarpCon. Oh, Diane, uh, yeah. Diane Duane, uh, for yeah, she wrote um, where no, where no man has gone before, or where no, yeah. the the TNG episode. Yeah, and it was literally one scene. In the the engine room is all that remained from her original draft. Yet she's yeah. the credited writer. Yeah, it's crazy. Although I yeah. do like that episode. Yeah, and and, I, I would be interested in reading Diane's original, but yeah, I, I do like that episode and as well. If you ever like, you know, obviously, you know, for any of our Trek fans that listen, if you ever have a chance to meet Diane, I would highly recommend it. She is wonderfully insane. <laughs> she's brilliant. She's absolutely yeah. fantastic. Yeah. The director of this story is Michael Ferguson. This is the third of four stories directed by Michael. His previous stories were The War Machines and The Seeds of Death. We'll see his work again in The Claws of Axos. Hmm. That's some good directing. Hmm. It is. The working titles of the story include The Invaders from Mars, Invaders from Mars, and The Carriers of Death. I like that last one. Yeah, it's... Like, I, I feel like that has got a kind of a hold over from last week, you know, with especially yeah. the latter half of the story. Yeah, but I think it gives away less than this title does. Yeah, the, the ambassadors ambas- of yes, death. You're constantly wondering they're an ambassador of what, whereas the carriers of death, I think, it gives away a little bit. Less. <laughs> we don't. We don't like the ambassadors of death. We prefer the ones that just give up for Hiroshima at fancy parties. <laughs> <laughs> so the title sequence for this, I'm curious about your opinion on the title sequence because it's so weird. So it does the opening title but doesn't do the whole thing it does like the first bit of it then it does the cliffhanger like reprise yeah then it goes back to the title sequence again to give the serial name the writer and the episode number and not only does it come back but like the ambassadors of death just comes in like a james bond gunshot it's just like yeah ambassadors of death um i i honestly like as kind of cool as the concept was, it did take me out of it because what one thing that I really like about the the, um, the way the classic who was done is that the reprise, which is always a cliffhanger, leads into yeah. the you know the resolution of that cliffhanger, and then like when you have the that uh, uh, when you have the reprise cut and then the resolution happens, it's just like oh oh you know it just takes you out of it like, ever so slightly. I think. Yeah, I hate it. <laughs> I'm glad they didn't do it uh, all the time because that was that was shocking. I really didn't like it. So um, the production text uh, for the DVD of The Ambassador's Death, uh, apparently Regan and his gang were originally Irish. And there's a suggestion that with the Troubles in Northern Ireland, they changed it 
and there was a quote saying, all in all, it might not have been the best moment to show Irish, quote-unquote, hoodlums planning to deploy a powerful new weapon. Yeah. What what, what do we know? Uh, When did you say this came out? 1970. Yeah. Not a good time for... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because even if they had said they're from, like, Kerry... I, I think the only way they would have got there's still the troubles connotation regardless I, unless you get like Miley from Glenro like McLally like in which case it's like you know yeah like holy god says Miley obviously then every time he'd come on screen I think it was t- nearly time to go to bed yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. so this story was entirely made on I was going to read this out 625 line pal colour videotape However, up until 2011, all the tapes by episode one were lost. So a lot of people may have actually only seen this story like before 2011 in black and white. Because it was only the black and white 16 millimeter that had survived. Mm. There was work done to recolor it. So a couple of things, it's clearly a recolorization. I think actually what's on BritBox, just because of the way the color sometimes bleeds, is a recolorization. The copy I had of uh, had of it was it was a mix, so I have some episodes in color and some episodes in black and white. Yeah, so everything on BritBox is in color. Everything on the DVD is in color, hmm. but I think the DVD has the original color, like the the original uh, yeah. videotapes. Um, and I think the one on BritBox is the recolorized ones because there's a lot of color bleed hmm. on BritBox. I watched the last episode or two on BritBox. This is easier for me. Um, And there's a lot of color bleed there that you can clearly tell was like recolorization efforts or whatever. Mm. So in the scene where Carrington and the sergeant hijack the truck, right? Which I think is possibly one of the most epic scenes we've seen in Doctor Who. You've got the helicopter coming in. They're dropping bombs. It's... It's crazy. This it's this this story, like the first half of it, is the most action packed thing that they've had. Like, it's yeah. like you have gunfight in a warehouse, highway hijacking, high speed pursuit at the end mm-hmm. of an episode, and then at the end there's another fucking gunfight. And it's just like yeah. Jesus Christ. And but my like, I don't know whether this is a pet peeve or just something I notice. Like, how many times can that poor bastard fucking unit soldier get shot <laughs> get dropped out of a helicopter get shot again <laughs> every time isn't he the same unit soldier that was like working in the barricade as well was, I, it, was that I, the same guy i think it might be and they're just like oh, this, this guy must be a pseudo time lord because he keeps fucking coming back either that or he's just like very resilient and like he gets shot yeah and then he just like shrugs it off, puts on his uniform, and out he goes again. You can at least put on a bloody mustache on him, you know, to signify that he's someone else, like, you know? <laughs> like like the robot chicken in Star Wars, where, like, your man gets choked by Vader and gets redressed. Yeah, exactly. Okay, he comes back as Lieutenant Leopold. <laughs> so, originally, what was meant to happen in the script was that there was meant to be a number of detour signs and a fake policeman who stops the truck. Hmm. And then they drive off. Uh, the idea behind this was to reduce costs and according to Terence Dix he actually worked very closely with Malcolm Hulk to write something that would be cost effective Michael Ferguson uh, felt it wasn't exciting enough 
basically persuaded Barry Letts to use the sequence that appears in the finished episode, mm. which resulted in them going over budget, as you can imagine. And afterwards, Terry Sticks was like, dude, what the hell? Like, I provided you with a more cost-effective method. Why did you turn it into a, quote-unquote, James Bond spectacular? Yeah. And Ferguson said, well, put it this way. You were doing your job, and I was doing mine. Personally, I like the one that we got. Yeah. So, like, it's, I think it's definitely in keeping with the tone that, you know, that we had seen thus far in the story, you know? And I think with the group that was running it, mm. given the way they were in the warehouse, it's much more in line with their methodology. Yeah. Rather than doing a detour and whatever that makes sense. We see the TARDIS console prop in color, not in the TARDIS. <laughs> so this is the first time we've seen it outside of the TARDIS itself. It's usually obviously contained within the control room. It's the first time we're seeing it in color. Um, it had been in storage since the end of the last season because they didn't use it on the first two stories of this season. So they pulled it out of storage. It was a little bit, it was a little bit of wear and tear. They've been using it for seven years. Um, and the fact that it was going to be in color now, you know, yeah, they needed color to... doesn't really hide anything. No. So they replaced a couple of knobs and buttons that had fallen off. But this is the last appearance. Oh no, the last appearance is going to be next week mm-hmm. before they've decided to. Oh, it's damaged enough. Let's do a redesign. <laughs> but yeah, so the first time we see the TARDIS console in color, they've basically sort of just taped it back together again. And God, it'll be fine. And then next week, it'll be fine. And then next season, it wasn't fine. <laughs> Let's change it. God bless classic Doctor Who. Yeah. Interesting point. I don't know why this this was important, but it was on the TARDIS wiki. Yes, I was just This is the second of two consecutive stories directed by Michael Ferguson, in which the title contains the words, the something of death. <laughs> like, okay then. Um, Thank you for choosing Michael Ferguson, the of death. Um, Caroline John who plays Elizabeth Shaw her husband, or her future husband rather uh, Jeffrey Beers uh, he actually played Private Johnson in this I don't know who Private Johnson is there's a lot of soldiers in this Um, he would later appear as the master in the Keeper of Traken so we may double back to him at some point Apparently, David Whitaker actually originally pitched this script for last season. The story was originally developed with the second Doctor, Jamie and Zoe. And it was originally set in the future mm-hmm. and didn't include Unit at all. Um, but obviously, when season six ended with all of those characters leaving, it was rewritten and revamped to fit this season. I don't... <sighs> I, I don't. I don't think it would have been as effective. No. I don't think so. No, like given that this is like, like okay, this is a very tropey story in terms of like you know man's fear of the unknown type thing, Hmm. and I just think like having it set in the well unit dating controversy modern times, um, it it does kind of really play on that, and like this is like you know a really kind of golden age for like you know those kind of movies or those kind of TV shows like you know the evil extraterrestrial type thing. Hmm. Yeah. So a couple of other changes that were made. Um, the second and third episodes originally featured an army character named Lieutenant Pollard. He was no longer included. And 
Professor Heldorf uh, was initially a German scientist named Kuhn. Sadly, episode six of the story is it's believed to be, there might be another one that's cropped up since, um, the most recent episode of the series to feature no surviving cast members. Oh. Which is depressing as well. Wait, hang on. Episode six. Right, okay. Yeah, because I was going, wait, wait, wasn't Benton in episode six? But he was called off, he was an off screen call from what I remember. Yeah. So, on to our cast. So, as Cornish, we have Ronald Allen. This is the second and final appearance on Doctor Who for Ronald. We previously discussed him in The Dominators, where he appeared as Rago. That's who Rago. he was. I was going, he looks so goddamn familiar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then, as Lennox, we have Cyril Shops. This is, again, the second appearance, this time of four for Cyril. We previously saw him in The Tomb of the Cybermen, where he was John Viner, who we didn't discuss because he Viner. did nothing. Viner the Viner. Yeah, um, we'll see him again in Planet of the Spiders and the Androids of Tara. His non-who credits include a lot of different things, including the importance of being earnest, the pianist, the adventures of Paddington Bear, the TV series where he played Mr. Gruber, Midsummer Murders, Our Mutual Friend, Eric the Viking, The Young Ones, Private Schultz, Zedkars, A Legacy, and The Count of Monte Cristo. Cyril passed away in 2003. Taltalian is played by Robert Corden. This is Robert's only Doctor Who acting appearance. His non-Who credits, though, include The Dick Emery Show, From a Bird's Eye View, Zed Cars Again, Ding, Ding The Avengers, Double Ding, <laughs> The Saint, 199 Park Lane, and he's probably best known for playing Detective Inspector Cherry on Dixon of Doc Green. Which I think we can now assume to be a triple ding. Yeah, I think triple ding is in order for that. Robert passed away in 1997. General Carrington is played by John Abenary. This is the second of four appearances for John. We previously discussed him in Fury from the Deep, where he played Van Lutyens. We'll see him again in Death to the Daleks and The Power of Krull. I will say that the animation for Van Lutyens in Fury of the Deep does him no favours. No, it really doesn't. Because they gave him like a block Frankenstein head. Like a, <laughs> like just like a perfectly you know, cubic head. Yeah, he... he... <laughs> He's a lot better looking as a person than he was as a character. Yeah. <laughs> Lastly, in our discussions today, we have Regan, who's played by William Dysart. Dysart? Um, oh, Dysart. Dysart. This is the second and final appearance for William. We did previously see him in The Highlanders, where he played Alexander McLaren. His non-who credits include Shacken Up, Survivors, Edward the King, The War of the Roses, Strange Report, Zedkar's Dang Again, Ransom for a Pretty Girl, and Emergency Ward 10. William passed away in 2002. Now, there is a character who ha- who we have seen before, but who actually receives several lines in this story, which is Sergeant Benton. Yeah, I... <laughs> now, Benton has a more prominent role in the story next week, yes. so we will talk about him in the trivia spot next week. But yeah, like Benton, Benton is here. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. Like I, Benton is one of my favorite supporting characters from the entirety of Doctor Who, both oh yeah, your know, classic and revival. Yeah, it's just like yeah, we're, we're, like we'll talk more about him next week. But I just His actor Benton. is also like the most smiley person ever. Yes, he really, really is in real life. He's just like constantly smiling. <laughs> Uh, 
as always, really good tri- trivia spot. Um, so now we're coming on to the second half of the podcast, which is the character discussion. So, as always, we will discuss the Doctor, his companions. We have the prominent character section for those that are featured characters, but neither like outright allies nor outright villains. And then we have the villains section of it. I just want to comment on one thing. This is the second section of the podcast. Technically speaking, if you take the interstitials, this is the third section of the podcast. Okay, I put music yeah. between the <laughs> submarine trivia. <laughs> Well, it's like, well, we always say it's like, you know, meat and bones, you know, say, you know, main part. I, I don't know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Second is just technically yes. wrong. Yeah. No, no. Shush. <laughs> <laughs> just for that, I'm going to go first this week. We'll be discussing <laughs> Off you go. <laughs> All right. So last week we had Science Doctor, which, yeah. you know, we love. This week we have Space Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> So again, get your GI Joe, you know, swappable outfits ready. Um, I love the sequence where he's acting out the G forces. It's, like, mm. it's just always going to be funny to me. It's like, <laughs> like the if you've ever seen Spaceballs, it's just like you know we can't stop. We've got to slow down first. <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, uh, I love that. I think that this is a great win for the Doctor. Like This whole story is a great win for the Doctor after the tragedy of the Silurians because he gets to avert the war between humanity and the ambassadors uh, with minimal casualties. Like There are casualties, unfortunately, but not compared to the huge scale as there would have been. Um, or last week, unfortunately, with the, the, the viral agent that was used. Mm. Um, I love seeing his interactions with the, uh, the Brig and the Liz. Um, the Liz with the Liz because she is you know, the uh, no with with the break and Liz um, and as well it's such a small component but I think mm. it's it's a phenomenal piece of acting and it's a great part of car- his character growth is when Carrington hands over his pistol to the brigadier and he surrenders himself for arrest and he goes to the doctor I had to do it it was my moral duty and the doctor just kind of gives him this. I won't say sympathetic, but this understanding look of, I know. Yeah. It, I, it's more a case of, I know you feel that that's true. Yeah. And, like, that it was, I think that's a phenomenal piece of acting. Like, again, it's just, that's one of the things I love about um, the like the three men that we've seen play the Doctor. We've seen William mm-hmm. Hartle, Patrick Troughton, and John Pertwee. Is that they have been able to convey a lot with either one line of dialogue, like a very short line, or even just a look. Yeah. And it's great here. And all those kind of components have led to great character growth. And this is, for me, it's no different. Um, but like again, like there's also the, the kind of the humorous aspects of stuff, you know, where he goes up with the pencil to Tessalian and then just like, you know... Um, or the handshake, you know, at the very end where he goes to like offer the handshake, he just runs the hand through the hair instead of kind of going, well, you know, good luck. Uh, I, I, I just think this was a really good story for the Doctor, I think. Hmm. So I agree with most of what you said. I do have one negative that I'll get to in a second. So like mm-hmm. for me, like, I think the start of this story, he's clearly still salty over the Silurians. Oh, yeah. Very salty. I mean, he even makes a comment like, oh, the Brigadier needs to do something. Now that he's not blowing up Silurians. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, that's still fine. Thing. But I like to see that him and the brig, certainly by the time he's going up in the re- recovery vessel, they're kind of back on good terms. Yeah. Do you know, it happens gradually over the course of the story. And when they're in that sort of waiting room and the brigadier shakes his hand, you're like, okay, they're back to 
at least back to where they were in Spearhead. Uh, Spearhead. Yeah. Again, you said we see Space Doctor here. We see him putting his life on the line for others. You know, his insisting to go up in the rescue ship. Him being like, look, put in the extra fuel. It doesn't matter. It won't affect me in the same way. You know, he's clearly like very determined that basically, like you said, he doesn't want to have a Silurians part two. No. So he's working very hard to avoid that and to make sure that that doesn't happen again. He has, like you said, some very funny moments. However, there's one thing that really got on my goat. And I'm going to say it now, it got on my goat enough to affect my overall scoring. And it didn't just get on my goat for the doctor, so I will discuss it again in a second. But he gives practically zero shits about Liz when she's captured. Liz gets captured. Oh no, Liz was captured. And that's it. He never mentions it again. He, we don't see her, him doing anything to try and find her. There's no like trying to track radiation signatures or anything like that to try and find her or the base. He's purely focused on the thing in orbit to the detriment of the search for his friend. Mm. And even when he gets a phone call saying, stop what you're doing or we'll kill her, he immediately continues on with what he was doing. He doesn't report the call to the brig. He doesn't say, can you find out where that call came from or anything. He seems to give zero shits about her and i'm like where is this coming from why don't you care so all right again my head would kind of go to, like no and i do agree like that like just like from, from what you're presented with it looks like it's uncaring yeah. and like my head would kind of go like is this one of those scenarios again where there's something unspoken that's written in the novelization or is are we expected to kind of have this like okay the doctor's whole thing is that like, if he can like maybe he's thinking if he can find the aliens he can find liz or like is that okay the brigadier is on this and i can trust the brigadier to find her it's allowing me to focus all my star stuff however and like we do kind of see uh, that argument is slightly reinforced by the fact that he he asks the brigadier, is there any updates on this and stuff like that? He asks her once, or he asks him once, is there an update? And he's not trying to find the aliens on the planet, he's trying to talk to the aliens in space. Oh, I know, but I was saying if he talks to the aliens in space, then he could potentially find that. But no, like, it's, no, at the, this is just, again, that whole devil's advocate side of things. But there is sometimes where that stuff needs to be set on screen. Yeah, like uh, if that's your thought process, okay, we can get on a small bit more with it. Still not great, but we can get behind it a bit more. Like at least have someone say, like, why aren't you trying to look for her? And he's like, I am. If I solved this, it would lead me to her. Yeah. If I spend all my time trying to find her and not focusing on this, I probably won't find her myself anyway. And what am I bringing her back to? Or even you know? like even maybe like a small bit of argy bargy between him and the brick was like, oh, I'm doing my job. Why aren't you doing yours and finding Liz type thing? Yeah. Um, so that kind of bothered me in a way and he makes a comment at the end that I'm sure a lot of people could see as like redeeming his dynamic with Liz at the end where um, Cornish is saying oh but I need someone who can talk to the ambassadors he's like well you have Liz Liz has been with them this entire fucking time (laughs) she's fine but even then he just sort of swans off. Yeah, that 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 didn't sit right with me. As as complimentary as that is toward Liz, towards Liz, 
it was more that he didn't want to be there. Yeah. It, he it, wanted it, to get back to what he was doing. It felt very, it felt like such a weird climax. Yeah, it just sort of, he, he just left. Yeah. He just left, it ended, and, and that was it. So for me, well, I think the Doctor has a lot of good in this story. I think we see a lot of good from him. I think, you know, particularly if you watch this back-to-back with Silurians, mm. you can see the character sort of recovering in himself and yeah. the pride that he has in himself that he prevented this from happening again. But the fact that the only time he's asked about Liz is, is there any news on your assistant? No. Phone call. Don't do anything or we'll kill your assistant. Oh, they're going to kill her if I keep working. I'm going to keep working. And I'm like, come on, at least have a... like it. it he's not even upset. It's not even like he's frustrated. And you're like... That's not the doctor we're used to seeing. His logic in relation to the fact that, oh, they won't know that I'm working, they, they won't know I'm continuing my work unless someone reports back to them. You're placing all your assumptions on Tatalian rather than the fact of there could some there could be other people like, in this Clearly space. the base is overrun with people yeah. working for yeah. Carrington. Hmm. And granted, he doesn't know it's Carrington at the time, but like, Obviously, like, how did they know to ring him in the lab? How did yeah. they know what he was working on? Mm-hmm. Totalian can't have been the only go-between. So I think, yeah, I think he took massive, unnecessary risks with Liz. Well, do you have anything else to say about the Doctor, or shall we move over to the lady in question? I think we should move over to the lady in question. For, first off, big pimping. <laughs> the big hat, the, the boots, the yeah. skirt. I think that's her shortest skirt to date. Yeah, well. the, the, the short skirt... The knee-high white platform boots, the fucking pimp fedora, and like the massive furry overcoat. I she needed a cane just so she could like backhand someone across the face with it. Uh, or use the Briggs swagger stick or something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which actually kind of does. It. Seeing as how in my head, given the way that she's been, like, the way she was able to take care of herself, mm. like was she getting some possibly some private fisticuff lessons from the Brig? Possibly. Mm. Or could just be she's a very skilled woman. I mean, she yeah. also speaks French. <laughs> Which allows her to knock a fucking guy over a bridge, really. No, no I'm saying that she's talented <laughs> yeah, I, in yeah, many yeah, areas. Yeah, okay, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Not specifically that her speaking French. <laughs> Au revoir, motherfucker. Au revoir, motherfucker. I will say that I, I do like that sequence um, where mm. like, she's doctored as the car chase. And then she runs away and whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and one thing I find funny, and this is obviously just shooting location problems, is she runs, you know, towards the camera, which is yeah. like into this field that leads mm. to this waterway thing. Yeah. Behind that there's a row of houses. Yeah. Just run into a house. <laughs> <laughs> and lock the door, call no, the police. Like, no, it's it's the one thing. In a chase sequence, all logic is abandoned. <laughs> No, I was like, what do you think was it? I'm being chased by a murderer. I'm going to run upstairs. No, you're... Just stop it. <laughs> um, but I think, like, just for me anyway, I think this is another solid performance from Liz. I think I, it is. And, like, what I like about this performance is it really... Okay. I would have liked to have seen Liz, again, similar to Spearhead. And even similar to last week, I would have liked to see Liz have more scientific breakthroughs by herself. 
as opposed to her just sciencing and then the doctor having the breakthrough all the time. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of that, but I get what they're doing. The doctor's the hero and blah, blah, blah. But she can completely hold her own, which in this story she has to because those other two fuckers aren't trying to find her. Yeah. So she has no choice but to try and find her way out. And like, I love the fact that we see her science it through. I love her interactions with her captors. Mm-hmm. Because it's such, it's so much of that Liz Shaw sass, which just yeah. makes Liz one of my favorite companions because she's just so sassy. Like, you know, when she gets brought back in and the guy is like, oh, but, you know, they said, you know, or no, it was when, um, what's his face? Lennox. When Lennox left. Mm-hmm. And Regan is like, you know, what do you mean he left? Like, they lied to you or whatever. And, like, he throws her over to the guy who let Lennox leave. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know, keep an eye on her. And he sort of, like, holds her. She's like, don't worry. I won't hurt you. Yeah. And it's like, oh, she's so, she's so good. I think it's brilliant. Like, she totally holds her own. Like, she's the one who basically browbeats Lennox into doing something. But this is a thing that I, I feel that Liz is kind of, see sometimes forgotten about yeah and it's unfortunate because like if you're going to like to draw a comparison to someone there's an awful lot of barbara in her in this one because she's the one that that kind of gets lennox to come on we're going to escape from here she's the one that's like you know the brains behind like the the prisoner party type thing you know and it very much reminded me of you know barbara in dalek invasion of earth yeah when she's dragging jenny like the supposed resistance member along you know now all we're missing here is a big fucking truck <laughs> but, um, <laughs> she had the roadster she did she did so, yeah. like it, this is like <sighs> caroline john was given a great character and i like I, she was given a great character but then she helped make the character even greater in my opinion in my opinion, Caroline John was given an interesting character who was mm. very inconsistent. And when we get to our looking back at um, Liz, which I think we're probably going to do a different format because she only has yeah, four I, stories. So we'll probably look at each of the four of them and what do we like and not like specifically yeah. about Liz and those. Um, her character was very inconsistent. We can see it in no less than the way she dresses from one story to the next. At the beginning, while well, yeah, her skirt was short, it was very... Cambridge it was mm. very professional and she's gotten slightly less professional as the stories have gone on but she's also acting as professional it's like it's, it's higgledy-piggledy it's like they don't know what to do with her this was the most something for the dads that she's ever dressed as oh yeah I mean the white boots and that skirt mm-hmm. I need a picture of that to go on my wall please because that's just amazing. Is, is, it, is it going to go up right there like with the you know William Russell ass shot from the planet yes yes it is um, I will say one thing though about Liz in this story my shipper heart which I've mentioned now in the past two stories with her and the brig did squee a little bit because when Regan is telling her you know oh your unit friends are dead like some of your unit friends are dead her first thought is the brig yeah and I'm like, yay, she likes him. <laughs> I, it was like, when it comes to the inconsistent part, all right, there is in, there is some inconsistency, but I don't view it as the same level of inconsistency as previously inconsistent characters. 
No, I think it's that they had a they had a, a baseline to work from, yeah. but they didn't know what to do with the baseline. So like her baseline is solid, but they don't know what to do with it. It's sort of my my when I say inconsistent, that's what I mean. No, no, I, t- I think we'll be able to expand on this a bit better in like um, a week and a bit when we have our rambling episode about her. Yeah. S- spoilers, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, how about we discuss the Brigadier now? Oh my God, this is. To me, at least, this is of the stories that Alistair Gordon and Lethbridge Stewart has been in so far. This is the Briggs' best outing as the Brig. Is he GI Brigadier or is he Brigadier Joe here? Like, because seriously, like, the amount- he he leads from the front on the initial attack on yeah. the warehouse. They all have rifles. He just has his revolver, uh, pistol. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a yeah, it's a pistol. Um, he leads from the front, and like, when he leapt over those crates, I was like, "Yeah, I, go what, on. I, what I will say is that for me, that fight scene has two kind of real hallmarky things. One is that the unit guys are fucking severely outclassed by the regular army; yeah. <laughs> they get their asses kicked. But also, it's very well choreographed because it's a very chaotic fight scene. It is yeah. like there's stuff happening everywhere, and like that's really represented by the fact of there's this one amazing sequence where the brig is in center camera and he fires in front of the camera off to the side. There's a guy, two guys tackle each other behind the, behind him. Mm. And there's someone trying to gain advantage by going up a stairwell. He turns back and he shoots that guy. And then mm. I think someone charges into him. It's very chaotic. It's really well done, yeah. but it's just like, like Nick Courtney was on par with bond there for me. At that oh point yeah. Like, you have that scene where, and that whole like him sort of shooting behind him with barely looking, it sort yeah. of reminds me a little bit of either Hawkeye in Avengers was, yeah. or um, in The Rise of Skywalker when Ben arrives on the planet and he just sort of runs and just shoots behind him. And like obviously Han Solo did that move as well. Yeah. Um, so we've got that right. And it, that already made this story for the brig fucking awesome. Then you have um, the thing where Keegan was um, futzing with the fuel. Regan, not Keegan. Regan. I, I've been saying, oh, where did Keegan run down? Regan, <laughs> I know. Regan has been futzing with the fuel and you know the brig comes across and one of his guys is hurting his head. He's like, what happened? He's like, oh, he's in the fuel depot. And the brig, completely on his own, knowing this guy is violent, just runs off by himself. Hmm. It's like, fuck it, I'll go after myself. Then you have he gets arrested and he's like being held by the two guys and he mm. takes them down. You have when they get to where the doctor and Liz are being held captive. And he gets into a fist fight with a guy. He gets into a fist fight with a guy, leads from the front, like do leading the charge in Bessie. He's just so this is the military brigadier. But like, even if we go back to the warehouse, there's a wonderful section where like himself and like the sergeant Oh yeah, that's yeah, so they, good. They, they like they stare each other down, and like they both uh, holster their weapons, and then the the sergeant runs away, and he's got the drop on the brig, and you just got that single bead of sweat, like almost like a fucking mm. Sergio Leone spaghetti western close up, mm. and there's just no flinching. Like even as that bead of sweat is going down him, like there's no flinching, mm. and he's Andy. You shoot me, my men will shoot you. Yeah, exactly. He was perfectly like, he knew he could shoot me and die. Doesn't matter. My men will take care of him. And I like that trust that he has in his men as well. Yeah. Oh. Do you know? Which is great. And then separate from all that, right? So action man brig or GI brig or 
Brigadier Joe, whatever we want to call him, mm. is great. But I do also like in the story is he clearly learned from last week. That's what I was going to ask, right? Is that, okay, we had a discussion last week over like, you know, the, the Briggs attitude towards what he what he did. Mm. And like, you know, and there was the question I was going, was this the Brigadier's decision or was this someone top down telling him what mm. to do? But from here, I was going, is he remorseful for what happened? Because he seems to have changed his tune quite a bit. He's a lot more supportive of the doctor, even more so than the usual don't fuck with my people side of things that he usually has. Mm. But like he's like, he's very supportive and he's just like, is it like he's now trying to kind of get this thing of don't judge the alien book by its cover? I don't think it's quite that far. Mm. I think, because I think in his mind, he was quite supportive of the doctor last week for mm. a lot of the story. He was riding him hard to bring him some results, but he mm. was also giving him the time and the leeway to do that. Mm. Um, and while I don't like what he did at the end, in many ways, it was a measured response. They unleashed a virus on humanity to try and kill them all off. Mm. Contrast that with this week where he has something in orbit, he doesn't know what it is and he has three missing astronauts who at the time they think have been irradiated on Earth but then obviously we find out later on I think his thing here is he sees um, Carrington doing what you know Major What's-His-Face did last week Baker. Baker, do you know? Like, Carrington is doing what Baker did. And the Brig didn't like it when Baker was doing it either. Mm. Do you know? I think he's very much a person of prove it to me. And Carrington's story has so many holes. It's a freaking colander. Mm. Do you know? And he's like, prove it to me. You're making all of these assumptions. You're saying all these outlandish things. If it's a threat, then yeah, I'm happy to deal with it. But... I'm not seeing what you're seeing. So I think that's where he's kind of coming from. It's nice to see him actually play that out and to see him go head to head with Carrington because I don't think it's that he learned from last week. I think he's continuing what he started but didn't finish last week. So last week, maybe it was the Brigadier's thoughts. Maybe it was just the ministry, but he did cave and perform that evil act at the end. Um, But... I think he's definitely going with, I need more information. You haven't proved to me that they're bad. The doctor, I sent the doctor to get me information. He was going to get me information to prove what was happening. And he disappeared. I'm not going to take that one way or other. People have been kidnapped from us already. I can't make an assumption that it's the guys in space that did that until I speak to him. Um, So I, I, I sort of took it that way. No, I, but like all in all, like I would just say, like that this is probably his. I would agree, this is his best performance to date. Again, though, <laughs> one of his people mm-hmm. is missing. Yeah, and all we really see him do is give her pictures to the police, and that's it. And that is not the man that we've seen up to now. Do you know? Yeah. I was expecting more calls of 
were there any witnesses? Did you speak to the people in the houses by the car? Did you speak to whoever found the roadster? You know, did you look around the area? You know, I was expecting him. I was expecting to see more in a story that's seven stories long, seven episodes long. I was expecting to see more of him, maybe working with Benton. But actually, that's kind of yeah. No, I would have loved more Benton, and obviously we're going to be getting it. You know, as time goes on. Mm. Um, but we we get we do get a taste of that whole thing of where it's like you know well there is the doctor's car sir <laughs> and just like that that withering look he gives him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually just kind of talking about there because I was going to say like okay, you know none of these questions are asked on screen because like is it potentially just like oversight or mm-hmm. fucking or oh, leave it up to the the viewer's imagination? But also, kind of like Evil the Daleks, there's a couple of things here that are shown but never really like redressed it's like okay the doctor said that the pod was locked from the inside how do you take something out leave something in and unlock it from the inside again yeah um <laughs> I, I think there's a lot of things there are a lot of small things in this story yeah. that sort of go with that i think with the with the brig and the liz thing though and i i did read a fan fiction a number of years ago which was basically the liz was basically liz calling him to task and kind of going why didn't you try and find me do you know? Um, which it was a great fan fiction, and I can't find it, but I did read it a few years ago. It was very good. When Cornish takes him to task, all he says is, and there's still no sign of Liz. That's, that's all he says. Yeah. Do you know? And I think in a seven episode story, they could have done more with that. Yeah. Again, it could have, there could have been like a nice little two minute section of the Doctor and the Break arguing over, like venting their frustrations. Or, like, sorry for the fact that they can't find Liz, you know? Yeah. Even if it's just like, you know, have you tried, you know, looking for radiation signatures? They'll just take her underground. We're not going to be able to find her. Like, even if they discussed the ways that they tried to find her and said, like, oh, I I still have some of my best men working on it. Cool. Just just mention it. Um, And, and that was kind of my, my annoyance. Here. Yeah. Moving on, though, we have our companion of the week. Yep. Our story based companion, which is Cornish. Mm-hmm. The freakishly calm and collected, freakishly tall <laughs> leader of the uh, space control center. Yep. And I'm delighted to see that Ronald, who plays Cornish, has learned to look people in the fucking eye when he speaks to them. <laughs> well, in fairness, he's so much taller than yeah, everybody yeah. else. <laughs> yeah, rude bastard. Um, I. I really enjoyed Cornish. Like, I mm. think he's one of my f- he's one of my favorite things about this story because he has absolutely no time for bullshit. It's either help him get his astronauts back or just you know fuck off. Um, but that then tr- that concern then transfers onto the people helping him try to find his people. Mm. Like, he seems more concerned with Liz disappearing than the two boys do, you know. <laughs> Um, just think, kind of thinking about it there now, you know. Um, and like as the story goes on, like he's not like Lawrence from last week, who's a purely objectioning to Unit's presence there. He actually mm. quite appreciated there. And then once he saw how the doctor just wanted to help, he really valued his input on stuff. You know? Yeah, and even like when he looked at his medical file, yeah, it's just like, are you going to be okay going up there? And he's like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. And but he takes the doctor because all the doctor wants to do is help. 
Um, like it's clear that Cornish clearly cares for his astronauts, and that is his first and foremost concern. Like the fact that like he goes out into the field to recover Recovery Seven the first time. Yeah. Do you know? Um, and there is the one point where he's super critical of the brig. Yeah. Kind of going, look, I'm doing my job. What the hell are you doing? And the brig lists off all the things he's doing. Liz gets a tiny mention of we still haven't found her. Um, but I like how once the brig said, you know, we looked at the two bodies that we found. They're from this place. They're fucking untraceable. We looked at this and that's untraceable. We looked at this and that's untraceable. Once the brig documented everything that they'd been doing, Cornish, you know, he stepped it back. He conceded. He acknowledged all the work that he was doing. He he didn't become the bumbling, um, bumbling, the rambling leader of the facility that we've seen in so many other Doctor Who yeah, stories. Yeah, like Clint or um, the guy from Fury from the Deep. Yeah. Um, but I, but I, but I also like I want to make the distinction as well is that like it's like it's the astronauts because yeah. the. Like the brigadier asks him about oh what would people say about the space program? He goes like that's not my concern. That's someone else's responsibility to say mm. that. And even what the Italian says like oh like this could be a black mark on the space program. He's like I don't fucking care. I want to get our people back. Yeah, the one thing that he does do out of a no, I think it does come from his concern for his astronauts. But I think mm. it is also him seeing the bigger picture. Is I love how he kept trying to talk to that news anchor and talk him out of letting Carrington do his broadcast. Yeah. He didn't kick him out of his facility because obviously Carrington would override him anyway. Yeah. But he's constantly talking to him going, do you know what you're doing? Are you actually going to go through with this? Well, it's like the whole, like, you know, catch more flies with honey than with vinegar mentality because if he tried to swing his weight around, he could get ejected from the the space center. Yeah. Um, No, like, I... Cornish has been, like, he's a character that just really impressed me. And it's, it just, I, I know I was just going to be like, and that's the thing that I love. I love supporting characters like that, that are in a position of authority that aren't assholes. Mm. I think at the beginning, because Cornish is so calm and collected, mm-hmm. you kind of have a concern of, does Cornish know what's going on? Like in yeah. that first episode. Mm-hmm. But then as it progresses, you can kind of go, no, that's just the way he is. Yeah. yeah. Do you know, he is like, if you sort of imagine it in the context of the show and the context of who he is on the show, like in the show's reality, you know, Mm -hmm. if you're going to be the voice that talks to the astronauts in space, you can't sound panicked. No. No matter how panicked you really are. So while he looks sometimes calm to the point of boredom, (laughs) you can tell that's, that's a controlled calm. It's not a natural cam. It's controlled cam. He's making himself come across that way. And that's why like that snap at the brig then is just, it's like, it's just, it's all that frustration. It's all that kind of stuff. Just allowed in one eruption. And then he's, you know, he's vented. He pulled it back in again. Yeah. He's now back to where he can be most effective. So yeah. no. I I will say, uh, I'm going to make a comment in the overall around the, the cast, the sporting cast as a whole on this Mm -hmm. story. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think as a whole they're the strongest. No. He is an exception, though. I think he was very good. I, I think the rest of them were kind of okay. Um, but he was very good. Yeah. Like, there are certain characters in it that didn't really work for me. I will mm. get into the overall. Like, I, I, like, 
compared to say what do we say obviously we use the moon voice the moon voice the moon base as a starting point but then if you go further back like i'd say we'd say the crusades as well you know? yeah um but like moon base seeds of death war games it's like those were like perfectly performed ensembles web and invasion web and invasion yeah sorry um even enemy of the world yeah like yep. on all fantastic ensembles the whole way throughout here we're firing like like so many other stories we're just firing half cocked you know yeah um so we move on to the prominent characters yeah so here you gave me the ambassadors themselves who we never find out what their actual species is and we have lennox cool so i think lennox is probably the easiest one to discuss first <laughs> yeah he for me he's a very mousy character mm-hmm. i mean yeah he has moments of bravery but those are largely forced by liz <laughs> yeah <laughs> um it still sucks that he died poor bastard but um he, he just there's a reason he's a prominent character he's in the story for a lot of it yeah he himself does not do a whole lot no but like so i agree that he's very mousy but like things like the situation that he's in usually leads to two types of characters complete whack jobs mm. Or cowards that betray the companion or the doctor mm. in that scenario, you know? And it's like, no. And to be fair, like, yes, Liz does have to kind of twist his arm into doing this. But he at least helps with the planning of it. He doesn't leave it all up to her and then just kind of go, okay, I'll do what you tell me to do. Oh, he, yeah. Like, he, he, he is, that's why I say he's brave. Yeah. You know, he does have his moments of bravery. When he leaves the key and says, they'll find me trapped in the thing. Yeah. Or like when he does leave to go to see the brigadier or whatever, um, would he have done those without her egging him on? Though probably I not. don't think so, and that and that's where the mousy part for me comes. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, no, probably yeah, probably not. And I agree. Like his ending is absolutely horrible, and all credit to um, I've got to take a look at his name now because Cyril. I, Cyril, all credit to Cyril. He acted amazingly in that scene. Yeah, like, I, I completely agree. Just like the pure terror of seeing the isotope, the panic when he, when he heard the button not ringing. And that's a very, again, fucking hats off to Michael, uh, because it's a very well directed. Yeah. It's the, the sinister, you only see the hand leaving the plate. You only see mm. the, the shoulders, uh, like the voice kind of going, don't worry, you'll be fine. The hand and slipping the wire. if it's, you didn't know Benton, you'd assume. as well as you and I know Benton, yeah, the voice was very close. It was, and like, it's perfect like it's almost john carpenter-esque in terms of using stand-ins that have mm. absolutely to completely misdirect you you know yeah um so yeah no, like, that that sequence like, was fantastic by cyril and like in my eyes like no i know they're two se- separate characters i didn't enjoy his performance as john viner in two no. it just annoyed the shit out of me whereas here i i actually like the character a lot more yeah and now we have the ambassadors yeah, so i have a question Okay. And maybe I've missed this in the numerous times I've watched this story. Mm-hmm. At the end mm-hmm. of the story, they can contact the space center, appear on screen, and speak. Well, their their way of communicating is translated into English. Why didn't they do that from the beginning? Why were they sending just pulses? Like I don't I don't get that. Like they clearly watched recovery seven i would imagine they watched recovery seven leave earth they know where it came from 
so that for me was a bit of a sort of head scratcher of why why is he on screen like even if they just had the beeping like the or the noise and then you had nothing on the screen but you had the noise and you had the machine the doctor built translating that would have been fine but why have him on screen if they have video communication hmm. why weren't they using it up till now range <laughs> maybe but like you're, there'd be no story if they did but then don't have them do it at the end or maybe it's one of those things where they're just trying to gauge the level of technology like because, you know because like, um, there's that whole thing of you know the golden disc that was sent up into space which yeah. like obviously like you can't just leave a fucking 8 track cassette there kind of going you know with a, please flip over to find out more about Earth yeah. uh, so maybe it's just a kind of a a determining technology type factor, you know? Because mm. obviously, in most cases, alien civilizations are far more advanced than Earth. Yeah. So maybe they were trying to have to kind of go, all right, okay, who's got the Betamax that we can use to talk to these fuckers? Yeah, but they did have the Mars 7 probe. Mm. They had it. It was there. Yeah, that's true. They could have dry-rigged it or retrofitted it or whatever you want to call yeah. it. Um, so that was just a, that was just an observation I had towards the end. For me, though, I've kind of broken the ambassadors into two groups. We have the actual ambassadors, the three yeah. on Earth, and then we have those in space. And I have a very different opinion of those two groups. Okay, so we'll go for the Earth-based ones first. I am not a fan of the ambassadors on Earth, and there is a reason why. Okay, go for it. They kill people. Mm-hmm. They attack places. They do horrible things right Mm. they're doing it directed by the little beepy thing yeah all that's doing though is giving them instructions Mm -hmm. it is not hypnotizing them it is not coercing them in any way they still have free will and they still choose to kill innocent people to save themselves that was the thing that confused me and i was like are are they like, is this thing overriding their free will? Like, are, are, is it one of those things of where, like, they're completely cognizant of what they're doing? Because obviously they are, because they tell Regan, why are you forcing us to kill? But, like, is this thing completely overriding their impulse control? I don't think so, because the Doctor builds a better version of it that's a two-way communication thing. It's a simple communication tool. Do you know? I think the Doctor would have mentioned it if there was some sort of hypnotizing factor to it. Yeah. So it comes across like, oh, stop having us kill people. Well, just stop doing it then. And because you have uh, Regan says, if you don't do what I tell you, I'll take the isotope away. So they know that what they're doing is wrong and they, they're only doing it so he'll give them more radiation. And so like, that kind of raises the thing is that going, okay, without, like, no one knows, like, okay, on Earth mm. at this point in time, no one barred the conspiracy knows anything really about them. Mm. and they're relying solely on the conspiracy to keep them alive through radiation right but like, so if they you know, break free which they're i would say they're clearly capable of doing are they then because of their very lethal nature are they kind of stuck between a rock and a hard like i was thinking are they stuck between a rock and a hard place because if they try to approach him for help they're going to more than likely end up killing them and as by virtue of fact be targets themselves but, at the same yeah, time, but- that, does, that doesn't excuse the fact that it looks like they're voluntarily yeah, killing killing people. If you don't want to kill people, then don't kill people. Hmm. If you want to escape and try and make your way back to the space center on your own, 
Mm. That's fine. You know, if someone comes towards you and touches you, you kill them. Oh, shit. The next person who comes towards you, you just step back and step away from them and isolate yourself. Mm. Do you know? Um, They come across as either incredibly stupid or incredibly selfish. Yeah. Uh, Obviously, self-preservation is a thing. No one wants to die. What would we do in their situation? We would never know. But in terms of feeling empathy for them, hmm, it makes it difficult. Like, you feel a small bit of empathy because they are clearly pawns. Like they, they, they were, they arrived on Earth under like a miss, like under, under false pretenses, mm-hmm. and now they're pawns in the game. Yeah, and so you feel empathy from that for that perspective of things. But again, because there's no clear distinction that their their impulse control is taken away from them. Mm. It's kind of like, no. yeah, and, and going to them having free will when Liz goes into the room with them and one of them takes off his helmet. Yeah, that's clearly him trying to get across to her. Yeah, we're not human. We're from so so clearly they do have free will because yeah. they chose to do that. Oh no! But in the sense of like, does this communication device that Regan have like does that override? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't think so yeah. because, and this this is just the the fact of filmmaking in the seventies. They do actions beyond what you would get from a simple thing. Yeah. <laughs> Push the button. Does multiple things. Yeah. Open the gates. Step back off the road. Like, they're clearly not automatons. No. Do you know? Um, and then we have the ambassadors in space, mm-hmm. who I do actually like. Um, yeah, they keep the astronauts hypnotized, but they clearly try not to hurt them. No. They accept them onto their ship in good faith. Mm-hmm. And sent their ambassadors in return in good faith. Um, even when, you know, they find out that, um, you know, that their ambassadors are being ill-treated and whatever, they don't take it out on the astronauts. Do you know? And, you know, do they have to hypnotize them? Maybe they do. Maybe the guy's head's kind of lost it and hypnotizing them is safest for the astronauts or whatever. Yeah. I, I'm not a big fan of taking away their agency, but you know, maybe it was assessed that that was the best way to go about it. I have more sympathy for the ones in space <laughs> than I did for the ones on the planet. Well, like, it, like, it, it depends. Your sympathy extends to like what football match are they watching? Like, <laughs> um, I got a real big sense of the rills from Galaxy mm. Four from them. Yeah. Um, but like, I think that's like I have overall I have a soft spot for this story because the ambassadors themselves. It's great to see like an alien race encounter Earth that wants that doesn't want to fucking you know destroy it. Yeah, that like that was there in the with the olive branch type thing. Mm. Um, so I liked that. I, that's one of the reasons why I like the overall part of the story and where my empathy, I suppose, initially comes to the fact that they were the ambassadors were sent, they were kidnapped because they were betrayed, and now they're pawns in a game. But then, as I've said, it's kind of overridden by the fact that going like, you know. Nancy Reagan, just say no. <laughs> yeah. Well, how about we move on to the actual bastards <laughs> of this piece? Yeah, so you've listed three again. We have yeah. Taltalian, Carrington, and Regan. Yeah. Now, Taltalian would be obviously the lowest ranking amongst those. How would you do Carrington and Regan? Personally, I think Regan is the more dangerous of the two. Hmm. But, Interesting. So how about we do Tatalian first? 
Okay. And then we can do, like, I can give my impression of Regan, and then you can mm-hmm. kind of see whether or not you want to give your discussion of character or whatever the case yeah. may be. All right. So, what the hell are his motivations? The only thing I can gather is that he got caught up in whatever Carrington's brain fuckery was. So whatever paranoia that took over Carrington in this whole scenario, he managed to convince Taltalian. Yeah. That's the only thing I can think of. Because like, is like, is did can Carrington tell him like you know that you know that this is something that needs to get done, or is there something else motivating him? Like, is there something higher? You know, because like that momentary he momentary pause he has before like trying to activate the suit. Me, suitcase bomb kind of implies that he's not all in on this plan I get the feeling like I get the feeling, okay this guy's not designed he's not built for espionage right he's as subtle as a brick to the face although it's to be fair when he wears his like you know his paddy cap and his big glasses and like you know with his big bushy beard it does look like a fake beard so <laughs> so I think his thing was he believed Carrington and he wanted to support Carrington but he never believed that he would have to be violent in any way. Hmm. And he thought that all he'd have to do is sabotage machinery and build a little communication thing. And that was all he had to do. Yeah. And I think the more he was brought into it, and that was largely by Regan, that wasn't by Carrington. The more he was brought into it, the more uncomfortable he became. Yeah. But like he had no issue with drawing a gun on them. He had no issue with holding Liz with the gun. I mean, yeah, he says he never would have shot it, but he still drew it. Yeah. Um, He knew exactly what was happening the whole time. He clearly bought into it enough that I think he brought into the general idea. He just didn't like to be the one to get his hands dirty. There's also something very unsettling about when he encounters Liz on the road and he pulls the gun on her and he's like, get him, Miss Shaw. And it's like, there's no reluctance no. there's no sympathy there's something very predatory about the way he says it that's the way that i picked it up yeah it's him in control of a situation and he knows because he's drawn a gun on her already this is the second time he's done it that she'll do what he says so even if he doesn't have to shoot her that doesn't matter you know he can still control her um but yeah the one thing i am surprised about though yeah is that Cornish allowed him back. Mm. Even if Sir James vouched for him, I am surprised Cornish allowed him back in the building. Like, is it like is one of those things like where I, I've known Tatalian for so long, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. He scenario. drew a gun on people and he sabotaged the equipment. And you can tell, because Cornish kind of calls him on it later, Cornish is not happy with him. Then why is he there? Maybe maybe Quinlan forced him, or maybe Carrington forced him. Maybe, but that that's that's probably the. In terms of how Cornish runs the space center, mm-hmm. that's the one thing that I was like, really. What the fuck? Like you could have done the exact same story, with Taltalian's second, who clearly is also in on it. Yeah. There's no reason to actually bring Taltalian back because no one suspected his second was in on it. So it would have been better <laughs> if Tatalian <laughs> went away and his second continued with the sabotage. Yeah. No, the, the, yeah, you could have done it with the, um, the mysterious technician person. Yeah. So, Regan and Carrington. Yeah. Now, I consider Regan to be the more dangerous of the two. 
because he has his own personal goals outside of Carrington's mission. Hmm. Uh, he's also more ruthless in that he doesn't seem to worry about killing people himself outside of the agenda, like by the fact that you know he kicks the the space center uh, technician off the the parapet hmm. of the of the fueling station. Like you know, that's like at least a twenty five foot drop onto car- hard concrete. Um, whereas like Carrington's orders from the start were avoid casualties if possible hmm. it's like you know whereas with uh, Regan it's like oh well you know everything everyone is acceptable to die type thing yeah I think for me with Regan is Regan is certainly a more dangerous individual hmm. but Carrington's actions have the bigger more dangerous implication one is aiming for war hmm. One wants to rob a bank. Yeah. Like, a little bit of a difference. <laughs> well, like, okay, so, no, there, no, in terms of the scale, yes. But, and like, which is strange because normally I'm always kind of saying, the one that always say, like, we have a moral duty to do this. I'm like, fucking cuckoo. Um, I don't, but there's just something about Regan. It's just that he's so nonchalant in the way that he treats the deaths that he has caused outside, yeah. of, outside of the agenda. Um, and like okay, like obviously with the two, you know, his two men that he willingly sacrificed. Look, it's you know, it's a cold calculating mob boss type move. Also, but, they may not have been his men. Yeah, they, they were the men he was in charge of. But yeah. like, he may not have even fucking known them. I know, but there's just something about Regan that it's just like, no, nah, I. I think, in terms of a one-to-one interaction, Regan is the one you don't want to be locked in a room with. Yeah, ex- yeah, that, that's the best way of putting it. In terms of the villain of the story, though, mm. I would pin that on Carrington. He is yeah. the mastermind. Mm. He is the one undermining unit. He is the one who arrests the brigadier. He arrests all of the unit soldiers. He's going to go on a worldwide telecast. Mm. He is much more dangerous in the big picture but Regan is someone you don't want to be locked alone in a room with (laughs) because he will kill you to give him more oxygen I actually yeah definitely I actually wonder how like take the doctor out of the scenario okay Mm. how would Regan's actions have impacted Carrington's plans like could he potentially have just you know decided to snuff Carrington out because Carrington was annoying the shit out of him I think so I think he I think he was perfectly happy to let Carrington do his own thing like Carrington could do his telecast Carrington would be caught up in the whole missiles into space thing. And while he's doing that, Regan will potter around doing his own thing. And if Carrington wants to have, if Carrington wants to go after him, then Regan has, you know, hey buddy, like, I'll tell people what the hell you did. Yeah. So, whatever. Um, I think Regan, like I said, he's very skilled. He clearly has no qualms about what he's doing and who he's doing it to. Mm. And those two things make him incredibly dangerous. Like, the fact that he like, if you think about all the things he did, how quickly he was able to do them, how like dedicated on his mission he was, like at the end you kind of get the sense that he's just you know a thief. He's just a very skilled individual. Hmm. But I'm really wondering where did he get these skills from? Like he knew that space control center really well. Well, like, like any good thief, you know, know your know your mission, know your lay of your land type thing, you know? Well, yeah, but he also knew which pipes to use to fuck shit up. Yeah, true. <laughs> Do you know? Now, a lot of that could have been Carrington's brief, maybe 
Carrington had him infiltrating the facility ages back. Mm. We don't know. Um, but yeah, the one thing that I do find interesting about this character is that he's clearly out for himself. The fact mm. that he doesn't kill the Doctor yeah. because he thinks the Doctor could be of benefit to him. The fact that he's planning on using the ambassadors to rob banks and things. But also, the fact that he offers the solution at the end. Yeah. He's caught. He's fucked. But when they're like, how are we going into the base? And he's like, well, you could use them. Yeah. That's like the whole clemency, my lord. <laughs> yeah. Like, don't forget who gave you the idea. Yeah. Do you know? Um, he is a very skilled, small time bad guy. Hmm. He wants to do his shit to get what he wants. The world, he doesn't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> He's out for him. Yeah. And for his comfort and for his immediacy, whatever. Um, does he want to take over the world? No. No. He wants to rob a bank and live the high life. <laughs> <laughs> All I want is the world and everything in it. <laughs> Except the world. Just I'll just take everything in it. And then you've got the contrast then in Carrington. Who is a fucking Fruit Loop, and not only that, he is a dangerous Fruit Loop. But what's one thing I find very interesting, right, mm. is that he he views it as a moral duty, mm. as opposed to any sort of like xenophobic stance. Like he never once. I no, no you can people, people hide the, behind the word moral duty when they actually mean xenophobic shit. So, mm. like. See, and this is where, like, in my eyes, there's a small bit of a distinction in Carrington's case, because so obviously, like, there is like you, you're right that do some people do hide, you know, the xenophobia behind the words moral duty, but like in my head, most times that's the case. They use derogatory language towards the people that they're actively trying to go up against, or they're trying to you know make the enemy. Whereas here. Carrington doesn't really do that. He just basically states that they they are the enemy and they need to be destroyed. I I dis I disagree with you on that generalization, and the reason why is there are plenty of people in this world who believe that out of love, it is their moral duty to send their child to a um, homosexual conversion clinic. Oh yeah. Okay, yeah, and that yeah. is their moral duty and they're doing it out of love and they don't use derogatory terms for them they are doing it because they love this person and this person is ill hmm. um, or they're doing it because they love this person what this person is doing or saying goes against something God, social norms, whatever and it's their moral duty to help them out of love so the fact that he doesn't call the aliens any derogatory terms or the fact that he's sort of relatively calm and cool about the whole thing I wouldn't say that that's any indication that he's not a xenophobe um, moral high ground is regularly a hiding place for many forms of discriminatory phobias because like, no I'm, I'm not I'm not kind of, I'm not disputing any of that like don't go wrong I'm not well it's just with this one it just seems kind of strange because the the, the instigation point from his point of view from his that we know that we know of from his retelling is the death of his fellow astronaut hmm. on his mission where they they didn't realize that they are lethal to, to touch and yeah. your man died 
and obviously because they have no way of communicating between the two of them, his no. The way that he he doesn't really kind of speak in terms of like you know he was my best friend. He doesn't speak in terms of like you know, you know maybe he was more than just a friend. Like there's nothing exactly. It's just that they killed him, mm. and like so that that's where for me it's like I can't see. And again, like you know, as you said, like a lot of people do do disguise it behind terms like moral, but I can't see. Like the Zen- I can't see the xenophobic point of view, or I can't. See- it's just a strange one. It's just like, what is it about the death of your one colleague that has made you want to wage war on an entire race? Hmm. Well, I think what makes him dangerous, though, is the fact that when he came back, he set up this whole thing. Yeah, he got himself into this position of power. He's in charge of space security. Hmm. Like he got himself in this position of power. He had no qualms whatsoever about running the the Brigadier ragged. Hmm. But it's also clear, and this is where his I did it for the moral good, I think, doesn't stand up. He knew he was going behind people's backs and he knew that doing that was wrong. If he was so steadfast in his conviction that it was actually the correct course of action. He would have made it an actual... Make it a public thing. Yeah, make it a public speaking point, yeah. As opposed to hiding it, as opposed to lying about his involvement, as opposed to playing into the idea that, oh, these are the astronauts returned home. All of the lies he tells shows that his moral high ground is a load of bullshit. The, no, like, I just didn't, I honestly didn't factor that thing in. And because like some, sometimes like my brain kind of goes like starts seeing about stuff outside of what we're presented, or then other times it doesn't take in something we're presented. And it's like, yeah, like why all this cloak and dagger stuff if it's such a measure of national security or like worldwide security? Yeah. And the fact that he was trying to pawn it off as far foreign foreign no that involvement could, like that could be the xenophobia play. All right, <laughs> it's just that blaming it on Britain's enemies. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. No, I I rescind my statement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I rescind my statement. Uh, I actually, because, see, the whole foreign... That, that, everyone just keeps shooting him down when he says, oh, it's a foreign power. And it's like, because, you know, there's two bit, there's two clues. Newspaper clippings and a, a comb that has... Yeah, basically, he's really shit at espionage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, I rescind my statement. Um, but, you know, he is like a fucking wackadoodle, like... Yeah, completely. Completely. <laughs> so we have gone through our story recap. Thank you again, Pinton. We have talked about our trivia and we have talked Thank you. about <laughs> you're welcome. And we have talked about our characters. Now we're on to our overall score. So Pinton, I will hand it to you. Overall thoughts and score out of five, please. Um, so we have a slight kind of a reverse image of the story from last week mm. in the sense of we have more divided opinion from the humans about the alien threat, especially like the Brigadier and Cornish. You mm. know, it's it, it was great to see that aspect of stuff. Um, and it, it, I think watching Silurians and Ambassadors of Death back 
back to back. They're nice companion pieces. Mm. Now, back to back, it's fourteen episodes, like you know, so like maybe over two days. But uh, you know, they're nice companion pieces in terms of everyone's character growth and the world you know at the time, the world you know, at the time. Uh, great performance from the the three main, the majority mm. of our supporting cast. And as well, as always, a shout out to Benton, whom I, I love, because I, I am Benton. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed the, the ending because of that, just that understanding, like not agreement and not empathy or sympathy, but the understanding of um, Carrington's point of view by the doctor. Mm. It's like, you know, um, when you watch Infinity War for the first time, like you know, Thanos is like, you know, well... I see where he's coming from. I don't agree with it, but I can see where he's coming from. I, I understand his motivations after run. That is genocide. <laughs> yeah, that is genocide, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking brilliant. Captain genocide over here, like. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, we have been watching What If. Yes. Because we're nerds. Yep. Um, Liz, yes, she does have, like, our role is a bit reduced compared to last week, but mm. she has lots of cool moments. She stands her own really well, and it's just solid. A great performance from Caroline John, just solid throughout. And, and you know the Brig, Jesus Christ, like what a what a story for him. He's fantastic the whole way throughout. Now, is it as good as last week? No. Mm. It's still good. I still enjoy it, but it's it's not up to the same caliber as the two preceding stories. Um, and that's kind of done with the fact of, you know, as you pointed out, the lack of concern from Liz, from her, you know, her two besties. <laughs> um, then, and like also like the kind of the lack of clear distinction as to why the ambassadors can't, you know, Nancy Reagan just say no. Um, so I've put it as a four because mm. I still enjoy the overall concept of the story. I enjoy the pace of the story and the, the, you know, the main performances. So yeah, like I, I, and just, you know, for that, I was giving it a four. Cool. And now it's time for you to give it a one because they did Liz wrong. <laughs> yeah. So I, I mentioned to you earlier today, I struggled with my score on this one. Mm-hmm. Um, there are plenty of moments in this story that I absolutely loved, but there was also a lot I was not a fan of. Let's end it on a high. <laughs> what, what okay, didn't what didn't like? I like? <laughs> okay. yeah. Nobody searches for Liz. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> they just continue on as normal with the regular police being the ones looking for her. Like, that makes no fucking sense. And we always talk about, like, or we've talked a lot about like oh, what's the best team TARDIS. And I said I was really looking forward after last last week's story and the story before this trio coming together. Because they're much more equals mm. than we've seen up to now. Yeah, definitely. This was not a story of a trio. This was three individual fucking people. Two of whom worked together a bit and then another two who worked together a bit. This wasn't a trio. Mm. And Liz wasn't around either of them long enough to really be seen as having paired up with them. (laughs) That it has all been in vain. The fellowship is broken. (laughs) (laughs) Which sucks because those three work so well together. 
Cool. We didn't. I was missing more of Liz and the Brig because their banter is always so great to watch, and I was missing the concern. Like if we think back to the Silurians last week, I comment one of the things I really liked was when Liz got knocked out and the Doctor was just stroking her hair. Yeah, I was like, where did he go? <laughs> like, where's this caring person? Where's the brig who cares about all of the people reporting to him? Do you know, that bothered me. So that was a big, that, I'll be honest, that was a big issue for me because it pissed me off watching mm. the story. The supporting cast, I don't think was as strong as we've seen in other stories. I think we had one or two people who were very good and the rest of them were kind of meh. I think Carrington, I don't think the, I don't think the portrayal was great. Um, a couple of others were a bit hit or miss. I hated the news anchor piece at the beginning. Like, why is this guy there? It slowed down the story so much to have him telling you what's happening. We can see what's happening, dude. You don't need to tell us. I, I think it was just exposition. Yeah, and like we see it in the modern show where you've got like the news reports and stuff like that. Mm. But <laughs> news reports of the 70s were very different and were a lot more static and non-emotive and fucking boring. <laughs> And in my mind, I think the story was too long. Mm. It dragged where it didn't need to and could easily have been covered in a six-parter. Now, I know there's back-end reasons as to why it had to be a seven. But if it was going to be a seven, I think there's plenty of other things they could have done with that extra time. Like I said, the search for Liz could have been much more fleshed out. Mm. I think the Brigadier could have had much better in, like the brigadier never even saw lennox he was just locked in a room yeah like wouldn't have been better if the brigadier had been to see him had gotten his story then lennox had been killed so the brigadier had no proof mm. do you know like things like that i think could have been done a lot better things i loved though i liked the doctor for the most part mm-hmm. um bar the thing i've already mentioned um i liked him for the most part i loved liz because I just love Liz in general, but I particularly liked her in this story. She didn't let herself be the damsel in distress. She freed herself once. She was constantly trying to get herself out of the situation. And even when she was stuck in the situation, she it wasn't woe is me. There was no losing the will to live. I don't think Liz even knows what that term means. She's just getting on with her life, which is great. I liked the concept of the story. <laughs> she clearly doesn't have a degree in poetry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, the other thing about Liz, I forgot to mention, like, Lennox recognises her. Yeah. And again, we're getting to see Liz's, now he still refers to her as Miss Shaw, mm-hmm. but, you know, he's seen her present and, yeah. you know, stuff like that, um, which is great. Um, I really liked the concept of the story. I think it was a really interesting concept. I don't know about you, I really liked the music. Yeah, the the, the action sequences music was brilliant. The action secret music. And I actually quite liked the music they play, the sort of very airy music they play whenever the ambassadors are doing something. Mm. Because it adds that otherworldliness to it. And it actually sort of, the use of music in this story, because it was music and not just sound effect, I think it brought the storytelling up a notch. Yeah, it wasn't just some guy sitting on a piano. Yeah, it was musical pieces that were very, very good. Um, but for me, the standout above all others is the brick. <laughs> yeah. 
this is his story. Like, no matter what score I give it, this is currently, it's on my list of best Brig stories in terms of his Briggy-ness. Briggy-Briggy-ness. Also, because you called them a tri- like a trilogy uh, or, tri- or like a trio, based on like this era of Doctor Who, I want to see like the Charlie's Angels silhouette of the tree, like you know, with the Doctor doing the hands and the Brig with the gun and Liz with the walkie-talkie. See, now I sort of have it. Like I was trying to think of an appropriate trio for them, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh no, I-, I have found the perfect one. They're Han, Luke, and Leia. Except, imagine Luke is more knowledgeable than he ap- than he is in the movies. Mm-hmm. Because Han has Chewie and the brick has Benton. Yeah. And then you have Leia, and obviously Leia and Han are destined to be together and they're always at each other's throats. And so are Liz and the brick. So And g- given next week, that's actually a really good, you know, description for Benton. Yeah. And, you know, science sibs, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um but yeah, no, I, I loved the Brigadier in this. I mm-hmm. thought he was fantastic. Again, small small loss for not doing more for Liz, but overall just phenomenal story I struggled with the score mm-hmm. you do like I didn't think it was average no an average would be 3 mm-hmm. I thought 3.5 was still low but given the things I didn't like about it particularly the length and the fact that if I'm honest some bits were boring I couldn't give it a 4 okay I want to give it a four for the Brig and Liz. But if I want good Brig and Liz, I'll probably watch the first two stories of this season. So for me, I ended up on a 3.75. I just, I couldn't bring myself. I was given, like, originally I wrote down, oh, I'll give it a four because it's quite good. And I'm like, well, how does it compare to the other four stories? Like, 4.0 stories that we've had and i was like i i don't think it matches up um so yeah based on the things that i said nobody searching for liz is a big thing but also i thought it was too long um they could have done more to keep the pacing going well i think they failed on that however it is a very well shot story the Mm. music is very good the acting from a lot of people is very good the brig is fantastic and liz is fantastic so yeah, for me it was three point seven five. Cool. I, I felt that way about certain stories as well. Like you know, you want to give, like you feel like you should give it a high score, but at the same time, there's stuff there that's just like, no, sorry, I can't, I can't bring myself to do it type thing, you know. Yeah. And, and then there's stuff like there's, you know, you know, I remember when we discussed the massacre, like the concept of a, the the historical setting of the massacre. I loved. I thought it was great. You know, for a historical period drama, I was hooked mm-hmm. into it. But for a Doctor Who story, I was really taken out of it because the Doctor was missing, and I had to rely on Stephen to bump on his way through fucking four episodes. Yeah, like if you think about it this way, like I gave the chase a three. Mm. I know the story. I thought went a bit long. Yeah. Is this better than the chase? Yeah, I think it is. Mm. I gave the keys of Marinus a four. Is it as good as the Keys of Marinus? As an entity, I don't think the Keys of, Keys of Marinus flowed better. <laughs> but Keys, because we talked about Keys of Marinus, is that it was like a little, a load of little mini adventures of the one big one. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that flowed nicer. Do you know? 
Um, but yeah, I think overall, though, I mean, this season so far, we're three stories in. We're both currently on four point five. So I I have a feeling that this will probably be the best rated season. <laughs> Well, we'll have to see next week because yeah. we've three stories down. We've one more to go. Then this season is over, mm-hmm. which makes it seem like this season is really short. It's not in terms of the number of episodes, just in terms yeah. of the number of stories. It's incredibly short. So join us next week for the final story of season seven, which is Inferno. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye.